All right, you know why we're here. So if you have any doubts or reservations, now is the time to say so. No one will think any less of you. Because once you enter this family, there's no getting out. This family comes before everything else. Everything. It's a thing of honor. For over a thousand generations, the Jedi Knights were the guardians of peace and justice in the old Republic. Before the dark times. Before the Empire. There was a dream that was Rome. It shall be realized. Welcome back to the David Gascon Report on Fox Sports Radio's podcast edition from Behind the Glass. I'm your host, David Gascon. Thank you very much for dropping back in. It is a wonderful day in here at Studio 54. I'm available on social media, on Twitter, at David J. Gascon. Gazal Hassan, you are back in the house. What's good, sir? It's out of respect for the guest we have in here. I'm just going <laughs> to leave it at that because I think he speaks for, I mean, he speaks to all of us during the season, but... Having him on kind of speaks for itself, David. You strolled on in. Who do I see at the elevator? You brought in a Hall of Famer. Can, but can I can I, t- I can tell you a story? Because the second time I've met Mr. Miller here, the first time was on the steps outside of Ackerman at UCLA when he was standing with Charlie Steiner. And so I walk up, and I didn't actually, because Bob was kind of standing a step up, and Charlie was in front, and I introduced myself to Charlie Steiner. And then he kind of turns as if... He's like a curtain. He steps back and said, "Would you like to be? Would you like to meet Mr. Bob Miller?" And I said, "Well, certainly." I'd li- <laughs> how, how do you say? How do you say no to, to? You know, what's what's the line from uh, Godfather? How do you say no to Don Altabella? <laughs> yeah. How do you say no to the Don of hockey broadcasting? But pleasure to have you in studio, sir. Thank you, Gasol. Nice to see you again, and David, nice to be with you. Bob, you've been with the Los Angeles Kings f- since 1973. How does it feel, and does it ever get old for you to hear that? No, you know what? When it really hits home with me is when. Some guy comes to a Kings game and he comes up and he's a guy who's got about a 15-year-old son. And the dad says, I listened to you when I was in grade school with the radio under my pillow. And I think, gee, it has been 40-some years and, you know, he's got a 15-year-old son. But, you know, I was thinking last night, uh, the preseason game that the Kings had played and we did a telecast. And yet I still get excited about live television. Sure. And know that we're going to be on for three hours Try to do it with a minimum of mistakes. I certainly make enough mistakes myself. But just the teamwork of of doing television for three hours and everybody getting together and trying to do it as best you can, and then the action of the game, I'm still excited. And I tell students coming into radio and TV this, it is so nice to go to a job where every day you don't know what you're going to see. You might see something different. You're not going to do the same thing you did yesterday or the day before. So... Uh, I'm still excited, uh, and of course, the last three of the last four years, we've had a lot of excitement, uh, things that I thought I'd never see, like two King Stanley Cups. So uh, stick around long enough, and good things happen to you. Yeah, absolutely. And going back to your original point, I have to make a confession because I'm one of those kids. <laughs> you and along with Al Michaels were the first two celebrities I ever met at the Great Western Forum. Now, going back to my days, my dad had been the season ticket holder with the Kings since 1988, the 89 season, and I was sitting in section 32, row 14, seats 9 and 10. I still remember it to this day. And in between intermissions, 
it seemed like everyone from the top loges down to the bottom section had to go through the same way out to the concession stands. Mm-hmm. Well, we've talked about this off air, but the press box or media row where you sat at was at center ice. And it wasn't how it was set up nowadays where you have these press boxes that are kind of away from everybody else. So you had to go down the same lines with everybody else as far as going to the restrooms or going to the concession stands. And I remember meeting you, and my dad's like, that's Bob Miller. And I remember as a kid, I was eight years old, and I could not be more thrilled. And I was so nervous at that time to finally meet you. And then we're talking about this some odd years later, and now you're here in studio. Well, it's nice to see you and what you're doing here now. Your dad's a good friend of mine, and and it's nice to see that you've progressed in doing what you really wanted to do, and and that's nice to see. I was the only guy. I wasn't in L.A. at the time. Were you doing radio and TV at that point, or was it just television? We were doing radio and TV my first 17 years, Mm -hmm. so 73 until 90. Uh, we did a simulcast. Because, and Dave can back me up on this, because we're both children of radio. As a kid, without internet kind of growing up, our attachment, you know, I grew up on the East Coast, so we didn't have all the games on television the way they do now. Mm. So my attachment to the teams I grew up with were all the radio guys. You know, mm. I met Mel Proctor earlier this year, mm. and I, I was the idiot who did the same thing. I said, Mel, I was 12 years old, and I heard you call, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. And, you know, of course, he kind of rolled his eye. But, he, you know, that's that's our connection to these teams. And I think uh, we're all happy to hear about that. Uh, you know, when you're on the air and you're doing that, and everybody loves doing radio. If you've done both, radio and TV, you love radio. Radio mm. is the announcer's medium. You talk about what you want to talk about. TV is the director's medium. You have to talk about what the director puts on the screen. So everybody loves radio. Uh, I love doing the TV, too. But uh, in those days, uh, we did the radio. We didn't do a lot of TV games in those days, about yeah. 15 a year, and that was it. And uh, so, uh, you know, and we never made uh, – we let people know this is on radio and TV. So if we had a replay, we didn't want to embarrass the radio listener and say, hey, he's always talking about look at this, look at that. It's on radio and TV. Right. Chick Hearn hired me, and he said, we just admit this is a simulcast. So everybody knows some people are watching it, others are listening to it. And uh, it, was, uh, it was a time that we had a lot of fun. And I, the reason I think everybody loves to have you say, I listened to you when I was a kid. If you're doing radio, and you guys know this, your description of that game, of that certain play, in the mind of the guy listening on radio is probably better than it is in person, if you're doing it right. Not that you're falsifying anything or exaggerating, but your description of a, a great catch or a goal and, and everybody who didn't see it in their mind thinks, oh, that had to be tremendous, mm-hmm. you know. And I think that's the joy we had of learning how to describe a certain play and bring the energy to it that listeners enjoy. Well, it, it's, it's just interesting that you say that, Bob, because I'd mentioned this to Gazal a few few weeks ago that before some broadcasting calls, I'll go back in the power of YouTube nowadays I'll go back to 1988 and Vince Scully's call in game one of the 88 World Series, and I'll listen to that entire ninth inning before certain games that I'll do. And I bring that up now because you mentioned how excited you still are after all these years broadcasting. I wasn't back – I wasn't old enough, and I wasn't even around back in the day, but you remember, obviously, the 1976 series, LA Kings, Boston Bruins, Butch Goring scores in overtime to send that game back to a game seven, but – that's the nice thing about YouTube is I can go back and listen to you tell me what happened in 76 
we're going back to Boston. I can listen to you tell me about the miracle on Manchester. Mm -hmm. I go back to Gretzky's 802 against mm -hmm. Vancouver. And I hate to say this, but I even go back to the 90, 1993 Game 2 Stanley Cup Final at Montreal in a game that some people say that, that really cost the Kings the Stanley Cup that season just because of a curve of a stick. Mm -hmm. But that's the joy that I get. For you, you've always carried over your radio call to television. Have you eased up on that at, at all, or do you like to do a radio call on TV? You know, I, I like in the sport of hockey, I like to do almost a radio call on TV because my feeling is the speed of the game, if you don't do that, I don't think the viewer at home can easily identify who's got the puck all the time. Mm -hmm. And as we all know, it changes hands quickly and everything. And I've had people come up to me and say, you know, if I'm watching a game and the two announcers are talking about other things other than the game, they lose interest. I'm reading something. I do that too. If they're talking about, well, did you see what happened in the NHL today? And the game is going on. Yeah. Oh, there's a goal. And I think, well, I, I didn't even know they were coming up the ice with a potential scoring play. I want to describe that. I want to be, if I'm the listener, on kind of the edge of my seat watching it or listening. You know, maybe a, a scoring play is going to happen because it's fairly rare in hockey, so it's a very important play. And uh, I, I have had people tell me, I like that because you've got me in the – I can be anywhere in the house and I can kind of tell by the inflection of your voice this may be a scoring play. And, <laughs> Yeah. And if I'm listening or watching, that's what I would like to have done. So uh, I think in hockey, you almost have to do a radio play-by-play. -play. I know I've, I've maybe pulled back a little, but still sometimes I say to myself, I'm describing too much. He's in the right-wing corner. They can see that. He's behind the net. But, you know, in play-by-play, -play, and you guys know this, you get into a, a rhythm and a flow. And if you stop that, all of a sudden you're you're stopping and you're 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 just disjointed as far as describing the flow of the game. It's like writing any great dramatist, you know, whether it be Arthur Miller or David Mamet or William Shakespeare, there's the white space where the mm -hmm. actors kind of kind of do what they do. I think going back to your point, Bob, is like for example myself, if I'm watching a game, I'm sometimes walking about the house mm -hmm. and I want to hear that that white space in the sense of I, I don't mind if you say you know right wing corner because if I step away then I know okay now he's got to make a, the he's got to bring the puck uh, back across in front of the net uh, it's interesting because one of our one of my mentors always told me about giving score and time and always give the time and score and in television that's kind of gone away but as you mentioned. If you're in the kitchen getting a sandwich or if you're over making the bed and you just have the TV on, you know, every once in a while you need to, you need to pop the score in there. Yeah, I, I think uh, you can get a little lazy on TV knowing that score is always on the screen. So uh, I'm doing that too, probably giving the score more than I have to, but that's the way I was taught. You give the time and the score, and I've got a great story about that. Roy Engelbrecht, who uh, worked with me at the Forum in those days, started a sportscaster camp, Sportscaster Camps of America, because he had the rights to Irvine, UC Irvine basketball and UC Santa Barbara, and he would put an ad in the paper for announcers. And he said, I'll get 200 phone calls. And I'll say, have you ever done any announcing? No, I'm a long-distance truck driver, or I'm a lawyer, or I'm a doctor, but I know I can do better than that guy I'm listening to. So he said, we should have a camp where they can come and learn to do play-by-play. And so we did, and uh, we were in. We went on the road with this camp one year, and we were in Akron, Ohio, and we went to Pittsburgh to do baseball. And the Pirates gave us NBC's booth right behind home plate. 
And on the way back to Akron, one of the counselors said, you got to hear this play-by-play. And uh, uh, the play-by-play went like this, because we told him in the classroom in the morning, give the time and the score. We've all gotten in our cars, and the guy won't tell us who's winning the game. (laughs) And you're trying to tell by what he says, are they ahead, are they behind, and it's frustrating. So give the time and the score. So the description was, uh, here's a fly ball to right field and Marshall drifting over toward the foul line. He's got it. That's the end of the third inning, and it's 8.31. He was telling the time <laughs> on the clock in center field, and it was the time of day. <laughs> He'd say, that's the end of the sixth inning, and it's 9.43. We that, said, no, not in baseball. <laughs> you, don't, <laughs> you don't have to give the time of day. <laughs> you are an Iowa Hawkeye, but you also did some play-by-play work for Wisconsin, the Badgers, and you mentioned you were hired in 1973 by Chick Hearn. You've done basketball, you've done football, and now you're doing hockey. What's your favorite sport? Well, you know, my, my favorite sport to watch right now, if I'm not doing if it's not hockey, is college football. Okay. I love college football. I love doing college football. I did Iowa when I was a junior and senior in school there, then went on to do the Wisconsin Badgers. And the day of a game at, at Wisconsin, I would get up in the morning and I had an a album 33 and a third long play album of Big Ten fight songs. And I'd have that on (laughs) blaring through the house. So excited, I couldn't wait to get to the game. And I still feel that way about college football. Mm -hmm. Uh, Last week, uh, I was in Iowa. They asked me to come back and talk to some radio TV students, communication students. And so first time I'd been back on that campus since 2004. And we went to the Saturday night game against Pittsburgh. And uh, uh, it, it was a... A game, I don't know if you remember what happened, but 24-24 with two seconds left on the clock. Iowa's got the ball, and they line up for a 57-yard field goal. And the Pittsburgh coach, or the kid missed it, missed it badly. But the Pittsburgh coach had called timeout before the snap. So the Iowa kicker had another chance, and he drilled it about 60-some yards right through the uprights to win the game. I'm wondering later, you really have to freeze a guy for a 57-yard <laughs> field goal? He's probably going to miss it, which he did. Right. Then he had the second chance. And so the pageantry and everything around that, I, I really enjoy. When I started doing hockey, the first time they dropped the puck, it was the most challenging play-by-play I had ever done. Sure. You really, you're prepared or you're not prepared. You don't have a spotter. You don't, you, you have a statistician. I didn't in those days, but... You don't have a lot of help like you do in, say, football with a spotter and statistician and all that. Mm-hmm. And the, especially on radio, keeping up with the speed of the game at a pace which the listener can enjoy and understand. And I think that's a key in doing hockey on radio. Uh, I get tapes from guys who talk so fast I've got to rewind the tape to find out what did he say. So you've got to describe a very fast game at a pace where the guy sitting in his living room or his car can understand what's going on. And it was a great challenge to me, and, and I just thought, I, I, I think I want to continue to do this. Masterclass with Professor uh, Bob Miller. Uh, the question I have for you is hockey is different than other sports because you're right, it's a breakneck pace. Are you okay because some guys, I've noticed this more on television obviously than radio, there's some guys, and they all sound great, who are maybe a beat behind, and that's fine. And there are guys like yourself and Doc Emmerich who are really right on top of the action. Is there is just is that just a difference in style? Is it taught a different way? How does how does that work? 
Well, I think it's it's a difference in style. I I always had the I was trying to beat the crowd roar on a goal. If I could say he shoots score and then you hear the crowd, I always felt you know I'm on top of the play. And and that's the way I like to do it. Now you're going to make some mistakes sometimes, but I'd rather be on top of the play and make a mistake than hear the crowd roar and five seconds later know that somebody scored. Um, But that's just my preference. And there's also other styles like some guys do like a, I call it a future play-by-play, like so-and-so will dump the puck in. He will shoot it from here. That's almost like you're predicting what he's going to do rather than saying he shoots it in. If you say he shoots it in, you're in the present tense. And, and you're doing the game as it, as it unfolds. So, uh, you know, all announcers, and I'm sure you guys do too, you listen to games differently than other people. I don't like to go to big parties to see a very important game mm-hmm. because everybody's talking and I can't hear the – I want to hear the announcers. I want to hear how they describe things. It may be better than any way I've ever described it, and as long as it's not a trademark comment um, – it's okay to use it and say, gee, that, that's a good way to describe that play. Uh, so we all listen to it the way other people don't. Uh, you know, they're kind of paying attention, but they're not listening to what the announcer really says, uh, really into it. How did he describe that? What did he say about this? Uh, that's the way we listen to it. How or why did you get into sports broadcasting and play-by-play? Was it just something that you'd played sports your entire life, or was it once you got – to the University of Iowa, you said, this is what I want to do, and this is where I'm going to stay. No, I knew early on I'd be playing Little League Baseball, and I'd be doing the play-by-play, you know? <laughs> <laughs> mainly because I wasn't a very good player. And uh, But I grew up in Chicago listening to all those announcers, and, mm-hmm. and I thought, as a kid, what a great job. You're out at the stadium, the ballpark, the arena every night, and you get to see all of these athletes and everything. And so I knew that's what I wanted to do. Um, and when I got to the University of Iowa, uh, got to work on the student radio station where students did 98% of the on-the-air work. So as you know, the only way to learn to be on the air is to be on the air. And the university campus radio station gave us all that opportunity. Harry Callis, great baseball Hall of Fame announcer, yeah. was my classmate. And, uh, and Milo Hamilton went to Iowa, just passed away a, mm-hmm. a week ago. Jack Drees, who was back in the 60s on CBS. So they had they had an excellent student radio station there. And uh, we all got to make our mistakes. I always said, you know, if you made mistakes, you didn't lose your job as long as you paid your tuition. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and it was just something I always wanted to do. And uh, fortunately, I've been able to do it for now 55 years. And you mentioned you went to that Iowa game last week. The game has changed a lot, and with so much money being involved now, there's an interesting story that's been going on throughout the blogosphere and even on, on television and radio now that a stud tailback down at LSU, Leonard Fournette, people are speculating that he could sit out the 2016 season uh, with the hopes of resting his legs and getting himself prepared for the 2017 season. Do you think that college football is dominated by just the dollar nowadays? No, I, I don't think that way. I, I really think that, uh, uh, you know, you've seen some kids come on and be walk-ons and just wanted to play for the school, mm-hmm. and they wind up getting scholarships and maybe get drafted, maybe not. But uh, I, I like to think, and I, I hope I'm in my mind, I like to think it's still playing for your school. And um, 
in football, you don't see them dropping out too much. You know, like basketball, it's a one and done because I, I want to be in the NBA. Sure. Um, so, you know, I, I think, and even now, I, I don't know how it happens. I think it's ridiculous that you graduate and you've still got eligibility and you go to another school and play. Right. Uh, Jake Rudock is doing that. He was the Iowa quarterback last year. Now he's at Michigan. And uh, Wisconsin benefited from uh, Russell Wilson. Russell Wilson yeah. coming from what, North Carolina State. To, and I thought, wait, I thought he graduated. <laughs> now he's playing for Wisconsin. Right. So there's some rules that I don't understand anymore. But, uh, but I really enjoy uh, uh, college football. Favorite conference? Is it the, the Big Ten? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I grew up in Chicago, Big Ten territory, and always wanted to go to a Big Ten school. I was going to go. I was a big Illinois fan all the time I grew up. Came time to really deciding where are you going to go to school, yeah. and a friend of mine said, "I'm going to drive out to Iowa City and take a look at that campus." And I said, "I'll go with you." Went out there, didn't know anything about Iowa except they were in the Big Ten, and uh, really enjoyed the campus. It was the the university was the whole reason Iowa City exists. Mm -hmm. It's not like Northwestern getting swallowed up in Chicago, and, <laughs> and I, I just loved. First of all, I think a big part of your education is get away from home and be on your own. And I love the atmosphere, the campus atmosphere there, and I still do. Uh, they've got a lot more buildings than they had when I went there. Mm. And uh, so uh, I, I decided that's where I want to go. I, I really should have checked more into the broadcasting. Do you have a campus radio station? Do students get to do the work? I didn't know enough to do that. So I lucked out in that you could do that. And when I spoke to the students a week ago there, I said, I know you're all going to be happy to hear this. When I enrolled at, was at uh, uh, Iowa in 1956, my out-of-state tuition was $300. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they all groaned. If you lived in Iowa, it was $100, your tuition, Wow. to go to that school. So... Obviously, uh, things have changed. Yeah, no kidding. A book nowadays costs three hundred dollars, <laughs> and you can't even resell it for the same value. It's even worse. And you know what? I went into the Iowa Library, place I didn't go into a lot when I was a student <laughs> there. <laughs> On the first floor, there is not a book in sight. There are hundreds of computers. Computer, yeah. that's, that's not a book in sight in the library on the first floor. They are on the upper floors, but uh, it's just a sign of what's going on in education, as we all know. Just out of curiosity, what, were you a, was there a journalism or broadcasting major when you were at Iowa, or did you major in something else? Well, you majored. You could major in journalism and speech, radio, and TV, or speech, radio, and TV. And I didn't go through the journalism, although I did have some journalism classes. Mm -hmm. But I thought the journalism was more geared to writing, and I was more interested in being on the air. So my degree is Bachelor of Arts in Speech-Radio-TV broadcasting world has changed so much with network television nbc fox espn cbs and a lot of these platforms are now being utilized on the world wide web so i can watch a game on my smartphone or on my tablet or on my laptop the unfortunate thing for the los angeles kings just like the la dodgers is that when a team goes to the postseason typically after the first round is over the local broadcast is taken off and then you go to the national broadcast how does that make you feel? Uh, disappointed and uh, a little upset, although I know the reason for it, but uh, and it comes down to money all the time, and, and the networks want that exclusivity. Um, what I would like to see, although I don't think it will ever happen, is 
the guys who followed and promoted your team all year long, mm. let them do it all the way through and let the network come in. Don't block them out. And I think what happened in 93, Kings go to the Stanley Cup final and ESPN was carrying the games then. Yeah. And we did the games on TV, so they blocked out ESPN in L.A. The next year, the Rangers went to the final mm-hmm. and they blocked out ESPN in New York. And I think they said, hey, wait a minute. We're not going to be out of the two largest markets in the country anymore, so we want, after the first round, exclusivity. I mean, I, I vaguely remember, like when I was a little guy, I vaguely remember, because the Islanders were the big team back mm-hmm. back in the Northeast that just won those four cups. Yeah. I think there was network coverage, but the local guys, they didn't have all the games, but they still had, I mean, I don't know if it was the road games or the home games. I still vaguely remember that. And then I remember as I got more into hockey with the Devils, up until you know in in the mid '90s, it was definitely there was a local the the uh, the local outlet had a lot of those playoff broadcasts mm-hmm. that weren't national. I don't think they they were able to do the national ones leading up to the Stanley Cup. But anything that wasn't like the weekend national games they were doing on Fox, I think the local affiliate you know, the local outlet still had them. Yeah, that may have been. Uh, but but you bring up a point that in all sports now the networks take over and yeah. and you don't get the local announcer and. Um, I just think it's kind of unfair for the guys who, as I say, promoted your sport and your league and your team all year. Now the most important part of the year, well, thank you very much, but you guys are out. And the, I was going to say the thing that gets local fans riled up too is like if the Dodgers make the postseason, for example, and I'd say this is happening right now, but if John Miller was on the call and it's not Vince Scully. Mm-hmm. For the LA Kings, that's when Randy Hahn, who is the voice of the San Jose Sharks, goes on an NBC broadcast yeah. And there's no Bob Miller or Brian Hayward from the Anaheim Ducks is on and no Jim Fox. Yeah, it's disappointing for us. Uh, again, in, in those cases, like in Randy, and Randy used to work with us, yeah. and does an outstanding job for San Jose. They're on Comcast, and mm. Comcast owns NBC, and so that's the connection there. Um, so I don't think Comcast is going to hire anybody from Fox to go on and, and do the game. But uh, Jim and I were very fortunate that the Kings – got permission for us to do a DVD of the championship game in 2012 and 2014. Yeah. So when we were doing that, even though we were recording it, in my mind, we were live on the air. And, you know, that's, to me, the only way to do it. You still feel that this is going out over the air and you're live. And, and then they put that DVD in a souvenir book. And so it's a... Uh, fun to go back and uh, and hear that they had jim and myself on one side uh, nick nixon and daryl evans on the other on radio mm. so uh, and they got to do the games on radio of course live so it was uh, it was a great time i'll tell you none of us thought we'd ever see i thought i'm going to retire before i ever see him win the cup then they win one and i thought okay they won one. <laughs> two years later we're going to win again <laughs> But you, when I when I watch your when I watch you and Jim, you guys are very good about kind of calling it not maybe not right down the middle, but you're fairly even handed. You give the other team credit and whatnot. And I know that you're you be, you're affiliated with the Los Angeles Kings, mm-hmm. so you're you know you're a, you're a Kings guy. But where do you draw the line? Because I get you 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 do present enthusiasm when the Kings score, obviously, but I think you draw the line at rooting. How do you do that? Is that something that naturally comes to you? Did you have to teach yourself that, or just the nature of what you of how you do what you do? Well, I think I had to learn it uh, in my mind because growing up, as I mentioned in Chicago, they were Homer announcers, mm-hmm. the guys I listened yeah. to growing up. 
It's the old Burt Wilson. We don't care who wins as long as it's the Cubs. And, uh, you know, <laughs> boy, we it's all we and they. Boy, yeah. we need a goal. And when Chick Hearn hired me, and Chick was put in charge of finding a hockey announcer, Jack Kent Cook put him in charge. And I always kidded, Chick didn't know a hockey puck from an English muffin. He was a <laughs> basketball guy. <laughs> and he's looking around for a hockey announcer. But he told me when I came here, he said, Bob, I know you want the Kings to win. He said, I want the Lakers to win. But there are a lot of people in this city from all over the, the country who have loyalties still to the team they grew up with. So he said, we we can be, be a little bit over middle of the road, but give credit when the other team makes a great play. And I, I think that's the right way to do it. You know, the Kings are not going to play 82 great games a year. And I don't think it's believable or credible if you keep exaggerating and the referees caused them to lose this game. And I, I like to say, look, they, they're not playing well tonight. Tomorrow night, if I say they are really playing an excellent game, I think that's believable. True. Okay, he doesn't always say they're playing well. And I think that's what you want is a credible broadcast. A lot of people say to me, why are you so excited when the other team scores? And I, I think most of that comes on the road where the, the cheering is, you know, they're screaming and hollering. Yeah. It sounds... And I said, well, I still put enthusiasm into it because it's an important play in the game. We don't know, is it the game-winning goal or what? And I said, I, when I watch a sport, I don't like to hear a baseball announcer say, there's a long drive home run because it's not his team. Hmm. It's an important play, and I want to feel that enthusiasm coming through the TV or the radio. So yeah. that's that's just the way I look at it. And I remember some rhetoric a couple of years ago down in San Diego with Dick Enberg, who's the voice of the San Diego Padres, and a, a listener or a viewer of their fan base down there had actually called in and, and complained that he was too vocal about the Dodgers making some plays against the Padres. So has that ever happened to you where someone had voiced a displeasure and say, hey, Bob, you're too excited, you're too pumped up for the other team as opposed to uh, the Kings themselves? Yeah, not not so much as opposed to the Kings, but just why why get excited when the opponents score? Mm -hmm. And like I said, I just feel that's an important part of the game, and, and that's what we're there for, to, to bring that excitement of the game through to the viewer to make them feel like they're almost in the arena. I mean, you know? it, Charles Pierce has a great line, and this is, he it was for basketball, but he said in regard to the coaches in the Big East, he talked about they pushed out all the poets and they bought in all the salesmen. And the notion of somebody like yourself or Dick Enberg having to sit down and they had they called Enberg into a meeting. That's what that was the that was the funny part of that. You got to sit with a marketing guy. Dick Enberg has to, or you know Bob Miller has to sit with a marketing guy and listen to them <laughs> tell. All right, Bob. Listen, we know you're a Hall of Famer. We know you. You know, you called the Blackhawks. You called the Kings for 40 years. But that, to me, is you know the precipice of of satire. I mean, that's satire. That's something you lampoon. Uh, I, I think certain guys just need to get a pass, whether it be one way or the other, uh, in terms of broadcasting. And Dick Enberg. I mean, he, I mean, he's retiring. God bless the man. Uh, another 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 Hall of Famer. And that that was kind of appalling. So I'm glad. That's why I'm glad when I, I watch a Kings broadcast that you do do it the way you do because I think it, I think it enhances your credibility. Not that you need it at this point, but it definitely makes it a more credible broadcast. Somebody like me, who's more of an out of town guy, who more wants to see the NHL side of it as opposed to just the LA Kings side of it. So if you do an honest broadcast and you you 
promote, not promote, but you give credit to another team or another player who makes a great play, I think you're right. And, and I'm very happy to hear people come up and say, you know what, I like listening to you guys. You're not homers. And, and that is a big compliment to me. And uh, that's the way uh, we like to do it. And, uh, you know, Jimmy Fox, Jimmy Fox calls. If the Kings commit a penalty, he'll say that is exactly the right call. That is tripping, mm. and the Kings deserve the penalty. If I'm home listening to that, okay, this is not a homer. This guy is accurate in his description of what's going on. What about for broadcasters, let's say, in the National Football League that take a stance against the Washington Redskins, and they refuse to say the Redskins. They just call it the Washington team. What's your thoughts on that? My thoughts are that we've, we've gone way overboard with our sensitivity of those things. Mm -hmm. I've always wondered, why are you upset that it's the Washington Redskins but Notre Dame's the Fighting Irish. Where, where do you draw the line there? Why, why is it okay? Okay, the Fighting Irish are on the... I don't get it. Uh, warriors, Braves, aren't those terms of respect f for uh, Native Americans? And, you know, it, it, I, don't, I, look, I don't look at it as derogatory. Redskins, may, that's, a, that's kind of a nickname, but Warriors and Braves were, were signs of respect down through the years. And uh, I don't know, I just, I think it's way overblown and everybody all going crazy over what your team is named, fighting Illini. The Illini in Illinois, that was an Indian tribe, mm -hmm. and they had Chief Illiniwek, and he came out at halftime and everything. I think, I think the Florida State went through this, and there was, this is about maybe 10, 15 years ago. And what they did, which I thought was smart, they went to the the Seminole. I mean, there was mm -hmm. a there's like a corporate headquarter for the Seminole tribe in the state of Florida, and they said, "Ladies and gentlemen, what what would it, what what do we need to do?" And there was a conversation that was had, and there was an agreement that was reached, and they're still the Seminoles. Um, I heard the same argument about the black, you know, the Chicago Blackhawks, yeah. and because the Blackhawks are named after a specific. Uh, it's it's a it's a a specific movement, and there's a historical context to mm -hmm. it. They you know, and, and they take the time to explain it. Um, and there's different. I, I think there's different perspectives. Whether the Redskins and the Illini, I think the same thing. The university does a good job in terms of explaining that history. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it's, but it is, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing that who would have thought that a team nickname could have elicited this much controversy okay. in the year 2015. I was on a river cruise on the Columbia River years ago. And we went from the Lewis and Clark Trail. So as we're going east on the Columbia River, we stopped at a Nez Perce Indian reservation. And they had some arts and crafts they were showing and maybe selling. And I asked one of them. This, this guy was, had his little booth there. And I said, I want to ask you a question. Are you offended by teams being nicknamed the Braves or the Warriors or... No, he said, that, that doesn't bother me. And I said, well, I said, I think the only offensive one might be Redskins. He said, ah, oh, we call each other skins all the time. So he said, <laughs> he said that doesn't bother me at all. So, I mean, I went right to, to a guy who lives that every day, and he said, that, that doesn't bother me whatsoever. Now, maybe that's obviously just his opinion. Others may have another opinion, but... I think we go a little overboard with that. Speaking of travel, I think broadcasters get so much out of the game and the team themselves when they're on the road as opposed to home. The Kings will be broadcasted all 82 games of the regular season, plus uh, obviously the Stanley Cup playoffs should they make it. 
do you enjoy being on the road as much as being at home or is it one of those things where you've been with the team for such a long period of time that you know these guys like the back of your hand well you know on the the travel itself now that we charter is it couldn't be any better Mm -hmm. you know we've all got first class seats we've got food and everything you can get up and get food whenever you want and get great service by the flight attendants first 17 years I traveled with the team commercially so if a flight was canceled, you go to the counter and say, do you have 43 seats on the next flight? <laughs> <laughs> it was a lot different traveling yeah. commercial then than it is now. Um, but and, and there's not a lot of movement around. And I'll tell you the difference. When we flew commercially in those first 17 years I was with the team, I got to know the players better because on this flight, I might sit next to you, Gasol, and we talk, and what's your background? Tell me mm-hmm. a little bit about yourself. The next flight, David, you're you're my seatmate, and I'm talking to you. On the charter, everybody goes and sits in the same seat all the time. Players are in the back of the plane. Coaches are up in front. Broadcasters are kind of in the middle. And I think it's a detriment to really getting to use those hours in the air to talk to someone and find out about their family and everything about them. So I, I don't think I know as much about them now as I did in those years when we flew commercial. I had this conversation with Rich Cellini, who's a broadcaster up in Northern California, and I think it definitely applies to you, because there was an article recently lamenting in terms of covering a team, whether you're a broadcaster or a writer. You know, 20, 25 years ago, you'd have certain guys you get along with and certain guys you don't. Mm -hmm. And the guys you get along with, you'd sit at them with the bar, or you'd go have dinner with them, and they would give you this, that, and the other thing. And what Rich Cellini had told me, because he's working for the Pac-12 Networks and ESPN now, but he said, you know, I miss, he was telling me, because I was doing the the CSUN uh, broadcast, Mm -hmm. he said, I miss being with a team. Because as you are with a team, you kind of get to learn those people and those personalities. Um, But I think now, why don't you, because you can answer this better than anybody in this room, with the preponderance of all these media coverages now, do you feel your relationship with the players and the coaches uh, has suffered maybe a little bit? Are they a little more guarded than they were? I mean, we all are as a society, obviously, mm-hmm. even 10, 15, 20 years ago. But do you feel you still have that kind of intimacy in terms of uh, guys coming up and hey, Bob, you know, this, that, and the other? Because as going back to the whole radio thing as kids, everything I knew about the New Jersey Devils came because I listened to Larry Hirsch mm-hmm. do their games on the radio. Right. And he would talk about sitting in the bar with Ken Danico or one of the coaches or, or this, that, and the other. I'm curious as to how that has worked for you with the Kings. Yeah, it's changed down through the years. When I started with the Kings, Bob Pulford was the Kings mm-hmm. coach. He was the only coach. He had no assistants. So on the road, he he wanted to hang out with us and go to dinner and everything. And I I used that to sit down and tell me on the power play, tell me wh- how you do this and how wh- what what do you want to see in your penalty killing? And uh, he would explain that to me. Now, they've all got assistant coaches. Uh, we don't go to dinner with the coaches. Uh, we don't go to dinner with the players. We have on the road uh, our group of the TV director, producer, uh, Jimmy Fox and myself, Nick and Daryl. Um, we hang out and go to dinner. The coaches go their way, uh, players go their way, and there, there's not that intermingling. Bob Pulford taught me that. He did not want to go into a restaurant if the players were there because he felt they're going to feel I'm always checking up on them. You know, what are they doing? Are they having something to drink with dinner and everything? So he'd tell me, 
go in that restaurant, see if any players are there. <laughs> and it might be one I wanted to go to. And I'd go in. If there are players in there, we're not going in there. Uh, so that's really changed now because I was close to Pulley, and I learned a lot from him mm-hmm. in those years. So it's, a, it's nice traveling on the charter. I'm not as close to the players or their families as I used to be, and that might also be a product of the difference in age. When I started, some of those players were about the same age I was. Yeah. Now, I said, Drew Doughty and I don't have the same music on our uh, iPods. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned the travel for the first 17 years commercially, and I always think back to one of the greatest sports movies of all time, Major League, and when that ball club, the Cleveland Indians, had to fly on those prop planes after their team was was being forced into basically bankruptcy and, and moving along. And I think about the travel and how things have come along. For you, Bob, what did what do you like the most about travel? Is it visiting the the opposing team's arenas? Is it the restaurants you get to go to, the different cities, the different hockey fans across the United States and even in Canada? What do you like the most about it? You know, when I started, it was the adventure of going to cities I'd never seen before, mm-hmm. and some of them very historical, Philadelphia, Boston, and uh, it was a way to you know, reach out and see some of these other cities and some of that historical uh, areas that you could go to. After you've gone to them for 43 years, you, 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 know, you don't do as much visiting some of those places. So I think a lot of it is going to those cities, and, and I judge arenas by w- where they put us to broadcast. Do we have a really nice view, or is it a bad view? Um, and also to get together with some of the other broadcasters. Mm-hmm. You know, not not all of us, like anything, like you mentioned, Gasol, 25 people, you don't always get along with everybody. and uh, But there are certain announcers where you, you, you go into those towns and, and you're going to see them and, and you're going to go to dinner perhaps with them. Not all the time, though. but um, uh, So I enjoy that. And just uh, being in those cities, now it, it is, I'll, I'll be honest, it's getting kind of old sometimes on the day off. You're on the road 10 days or whatever, mm-hmm. and on a non-game day, you're sitting around thinking, you know, I'm here wasting time uh, in in this city because we're in the middle of winter. It's not like the summer where we can go out somewhere for a walk. We're 30 below zero in Calgary. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not <laughs> taking a stroll, you know. So it, sometimes that's uh, a little tedious uh, on, those, on those trips. But the actual flights and the way we're treated in the hotels – are top-notch. Couldn't be better. Now, do you ever feel like a player in this instance where if you go, let's say, to the old Maple Leaf Gardens or the old United Center or even the Montreal Forum, do you ever feel geeked up like you are a part of this game, that you are on one of these lines and you get goosebumps and chills? I know you said you mentioned you get excited before these television broadcasts, but do you ever feel extra motivation for a game prior to visiting some of these old arenas or even the new ones now? You know, I think when we went into some of those, like Maple Leaf Gardens and the old Montreal Forum, yeah. Madison Square Garden, Boston Garden, uh, you, you, the first time you go there, I was just anxious to see these arenas. Mm-hmm. You know, I saw the old Boston Garden on TV on Sunday, CBS doing hockey, and I thought, oh, man, I'd love to do a game there. Yeah. got there and found they had peanut shells from 1910 <laughs> underneath the seats and everything, and it was a dump. It really was. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, But... I still have the, when you go into some of the lobbies, like in the Montreal Forum, here are all the great photos of Jean Beliveau and Rocket Richard, and and you go into the arena, and there's the 24 Stanley Cup banners, and that gets you 
that really gets you going, you know. And uh, the Maple Leaf Gardens had the old uh, pictures of the Maple Leafs and everything like that. And even in Boston, uh, you'd see Phil Esposito and Bobby Orr, and and you knew the history of those of those cities and those arenas. And uh, uh, went into Maple Leaf Gardens my first year, and sitting in the booth next to me was Foster Hewitt. He's a legendary broadcaster of all time in the National Hockey League. And if the puck had come down the ice and it's going to be an icing call, I'd stop talking and kind of lean over to hear what Foster was saying. <laughs> <laughs> but those were great times for me to meet some of these people, these icons of, of broadcasting uh, in the National Hockey League. And Danny Gallivan in Montreal and uh, Foster Hewitt in uh, Toronto. So uh, those were perks that you got as a youngster coming into the league and seeing these places you've only heard about and meeting people that you've listened to before. Bob, who are some of the guys? You mentioned that occasionally you'll go out to dinner with some of the other broadcasters. Who are some of the guys around the league that have been around and are, and are friends of yours? Well, Chuck Caton in Carolina. Chuck Caton replaced me in Wisconsin when I left to come to the Kings, and he did the Badger games. Then when the league expanded in 79, he went to Hartford to do the Whalers and then moved with them down to Carolina. And every time we go, Chuck is such an outgoing person. Every time we go there, and Mary is cooking dinner for all you guys. And he'll drive over, pick up myself and Nick Nixon, Daryl Evans, Jimmy Fox, and whoever else wants to come. And they, we go to their house, have a great dinner the night before the game. And uh, he is, uh, he's come out here to visit. His, uh, his, some of his sons live out here. And uh, he's, he's just a joy to be around. So that's someone I look forward to going to Carolina and, and seeing Chuck or having Chuck come out here. Um, there are a few others that we don't always get together with the other announcers in some of these towns. And, and like, I'm, I'm at fault for that. If the team visiting us is staying down in Manhattan Beach and I'm living in the San Fernando Valley, mm -hmm. I don't say, let's get together. It's only a five-minute <laughs> drive for me, you know. So, but they're most, to the most part, they're all friendly guys. You get together and have a good time uh, chatting with them before the game and whenever you get that opportunity. During a road trip last year, Fox Sports West did a nice pregame feature with you walking the streets of Nashville. Yeah. And that's one of those cities that I've never been to, but I think it's, it's a city that I would adore just because the atmosphere, the culture, the music. Is Nashville one of those underrated, underappreciated hockey cities in the National Hockey League? Yeah, it might be, although there are a lot, of, and I'm a country music fan, and there are a lot of players who love country music. And, and as you know, you go there, and a block away from your hotel, we just go right down the street on uh, Lower Broadway there, and mm. there's one honky-tonk after another. <laughs> and and uh, I, I, don't, I don't stay in there drinking all night, but <laughs> I do go in and just listen to the music, stand around, because I, I love the music and uh, go to the Country Music Hall of Fame, which is right across yeah. from the arena, and go out to uh, uh, the Grand Old Opry and Ryman Auditorium. It's right behind Tootsie's Orchid Lounge, and uh, those places are. And the All-Star Game is there this mm -hmm. coming year, so people are going to have a lot of fun there. Uh, it's, it's like right at your fingertips. You don't have to say, where are we going to go? How are we going to get there? You walk out of your hotel, and there's all this entertainment there. And uh, I, I really enjoy uh, going to Nashville. Yeah, it makes me feel about like Boston and, and New York and even a little bit of Colorado because it seems like those cities have the public transportation, the bars, the restaurants, and then obviously the arenas that kind of circle around the, the buildings themselves. I love it. 
any particular city that you love visiting the most, whether it's for the night life as far as like the wining and dining and whatnot, or just the La hockey Rue culture. La Rue de Saint-Catherine? Is, is that still? <laughs> well, my nightlife now ends about 7.30 at night. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I started, I loved going to Boston. Okay. I thought it was one of the few major cities where you could walk around. The Boston Commons is there. You can walk on Boylston Street, mm-hmm. and you could walk around. And, and then, of course, they have that, I think it's Freedom Trail, and follow uh, that, you know, the, the Paul Revere thing. And uh, so very historic. And I still like going to Boston. Um, and there, Chicago, I grew up there. Uh, we stay downtown. And usually what we do now, Nick Nixon and I used to go to a lot of movies. Now we get into town at 5.30 or so. When are we going to dinner? We go to dinner at 7.30, yeah. get back to the hotel at 9.30, 10 o'clock, and, and that's it. You know, uh, you go and do a little preparation for the next day if you haven't done some already on the plane. But, uh, yeah, it, uh, uh, I'm not out till wee hours of the morning. <laughs> Favorite movies or at least genre that you watch most, most often right now? Is it uh, suspense, action? You like the, uh, uh, the comedies? What do you do to keep yourself entertained while you're on the road? Well, I go to go to the uh, movies once in a while, and and I'm, I, I like all different kind. I'm I'm not a big space or science fiction guy, and um, but the human condition, right? Yeah, right. And I, I like comedies. You mm-hmm. know, they all kid me. I think Dumb and Dumber is one of the great movies <laughs> I've ever seen. Oh, <laughs> uh, hello to Jim Carrey. We got to get in the meat and potatoes of this thing now. 2015, 2016 is is finally here. In fact, last night you did. Uh, a game, Kings and Ducks at Staples. That was interesting because it actually went to an overtime where you had the three-on-three displayed. How was that showcase for the fans? Did you like it? Did Jim like it? How do you think the fans were receptive to it? I think we're all getting used to it. I've only seen it twice now, one uh, other game at Staples where the Kings won in uh, in overtime. And then last night, I think the fans enjoy it. I, I think it's better than four-on-four because – You've got so much room out there, and you've got some talented players. And it's going to be interesting to me this season to see how certain teams use that three-on-three. Three. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you go with the two forwards, one defense? That seems to be the way everybody's going. But there might be a time when you say, look, we need a win here, and it's against a non-conference opponent, it's against an Eastern opponent. Mm-hmm. Let's put out three forwards and go for it. And uh, the Ducks last night, they seem to say, hang on to the puck. And, and Daryl Sutter said that too. Face-off is very important. Ducks won the face-off. Kings never touched the puck. I said, I think it'd be nice to let us play with the puck once in a while <laughs> in overtime. But each team is going to handle it maybe a little differently, and uh, that's going to be interesting to see. But then you are going to go to the shootout if it's still tied after that. But they're not going to have – they didn't want that many games ending – before the shoot, or, you know, in the shootout. Mm-hmm. So now I think our figure last night was almost 80% of the games that go three on three are decided. And that's what the league wants. So I think it's exciting for the fans. You think it's better for the game? <clears throat> yeah, yeah I, I think it's, I like the overtime. I was a big proponent of the shootout. So was Jimmy before it came in. Because we saw it in a preseason game in Las Vegas and it went 10 rounds. And the Kings beat Patrick Waugh. And that's all anybody talked about the next, after the game and the next day in the hotel and casinos. What a great finish to that game. It was a meaningless preseason game. Mm-hmm. But they all talked about 
how exciting the shootout was. Went 10 rounds. So Jimmy and I were always, get the shootout, have the shootout, because <laughs> we didn't like to see the game end 2-2 two, two or 3-3, three, three, and that's it. Go home. Thanks for coming. It's a tie. Um, and I think the shootout has been exciting. Everybody's on their feet. Everybody's screaming and hollering. And, but I do think the purist likes that the game has ended in somewhat of a normal hockey play where you've got teammates and passing and shooting and, and not just a, a shootout one-on-one -on -one against the goalie. You mentioned Daryl Sutter. And obviously, he's got kind of a, a, a interesting or intriguing relationship with the media. How's your relationship with Coach Sutter? Do you have one, or are you kind of uh, kept away from that? Yeah, it's all, and I've been appreciative of this. It's always been great, even when he was in San Jose and Calgary. He's always very friendly with me. I don't think he gave me any information that he was wasn't going to give everybody, um, but he always came up and chatted with me. Always come up, hey Hall of Famer, how are you? And uh, I think. I never asked him this, but I think it stems from my relationship with Kings coach Bob Pulford for the five years that Pulley was here and his relationship with Pulford playing for the Blackhawks for eight years and learning how to coach under Bob Pulford. So I think because of that connection, he's always been very cooperative and, and friendly with me. And, and uh, you know, uh, when he first came here, Fox Sports said to me, we want you to sit down and do about a 45-minute interview with uh, Coach Sutter. And I said, what? <laughs> 45 minutes? No, <laughs> he, he doesn't give real long, long answers. That might take a year. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding you. I had 55 questions. And when we started, he was fantastic. It was just he and I and a cameraman in an empty locker room. And we started and we talked about all kinds of things, not just – you know, I don't want to ask him, why is your fourth-line right winger not playing so many minutes and all mm -hmm. that? that I, I don't want to talk about that all the time. I talked about, tell me about growing up with all of your brothers and six of them in the National Hockey League, and you're growing up in Viking, Alberta, which is between Edmonton and Calgary, and uh, talked about that his family did not have electricity in their house until 1967. Wow. I I, I can't believe that. We said a power outage yesterday. I was I was texting David. I was freaking out. I was without it for about 20 minutes. <laughs> Think of living that way for 365 days a year for years and years. Yeah, no kidding. And and he was fantastic. He is so focused, though, on a game day that the only thing in his mind is not talking to you about his family life. and It's that game tonight. From the time he gets up in the morning – or even maybe goes to bed the night before. Bernie Nichols said when Bernie was uh, coaching, uh, assistant coach with, with the Kings or with the Kings, and or even played for him in San Jose, 9.30 in the morning he said to Bernie, Bernie, you ready? Bernie said, for what? For the game. Bernie said, the game's not till 7.30 tonight. <laughs> it's 9.30 in the morning. But that's the way Daryl was thinking. You're ready every second of the day of that game. And uh, so it, it's tough to get things out of him. He's not going to give you much information, but uh, that's the way he likes it. And we, we can't argue with two Stanley Cups in the, in the last four years. How many of those 55 questions did you get to? Uh, not all of them because he was really <laughs> expansive. And, and, and quite frankly, he surprised me. But we had a really nice conversation. And uh, the interview, they could use parts of it over several months of the season. 
uh, between periods and stuff. And, and I, I really enjoyed uh, doing that with him. And uh, so on the plane, you know, I, I don't like to always talk hockey with him. After the Olympic break a year ago, we got back on the plane and he came down the aisle and I just said, Daryl, did you go to the ranch during the Olympics? Yes. And he was all excited. He said, yes, I did. <laughs> and we had 70 calves born during the Olympic break. Unassisted. I said, what do you mean unassisted? Well, my dad taught us sometimes you got to, you know, help the birth. I said, okay, that's all I need to know. <laughs> he was more excited about that than anything I'd seen him get excited about. So, so that's nice to see that personality of his away from the game where it's not always the game, the game, the game. And uh, uh, he, he's, he's a great family man. He loves that ranch up there in Alberta. And uh, so sometimes we have, uh, we have a lot to talk about other than hockey. What do you do to get away from the game? Do you and Judy travel a lot? Or you guys just stay locally? I mean, what is it that you like to do in your off time? Yeah, we like to travel during the off season. We only obviously can do it in the, in the summer months here. Uh, but we've gone on several cruises, river cruises in Europe, which we really enjoy. All right. Uh, because you're you're right near those little towns. You pull over. There's only 150 people. You get out and walk through a town in France. And uh, we went for, to the uh, uh, Normandy, uh, to the uh, the uh, invasion area there, and that was very historic and and dramatic and emotional. And we've done other river cruises on the Danube and the Seine and the uh, and the uh, Rhine and ocean cruises. So we like to do that, but. We also like to go to places in the U.S. One summer, we went to Mount Rushmore. We went to Yellowstone. We went to the Grand Tetons. And all of a sudden, you realize there are so many great areas in this country that some of us don't ever go to. Right. We think we've got to go to Europe all the time or somewhere. We really enjoyed seeing some of the national parks and some of those great monuments. So the other thing I do, and Judy, for an anniversary, and I'm ashamed to say it was so many years ago that she got me this because I, I don't play very well, she got me a guitar. I said, you know, I always wish that I had learned <laughs> to play an instrument. So I think on our 14th wedding anniversary, she gets me a guitar. And not a real expensive one because she thought it's going to sit in the corner and you'll never play it. Mm -hmm. But I took some lessons, group lessons, then some private lessons. And it was the first time I ever had a hobby that wasn't involved with sports, almost like an extension of your job. Yeah, And I... And I still don't play very well, but I play well enough to enjoy it and take it to a party and play a couple songs. But it was come home from a road trip, go in and just play the guitar for an hour. And it was such a diversion. I still do it. I still enjoy it. And uh, so that's what we do. We travel and uh, and I play guitar. So not very well, but uh, well enough to enjoy it myself. Well, you talk <laughs> about guitars. Let's go from guitars to rock stars. So, and I, I always wanted to ask somebody this, and I've not met anybody as closely associated with the Kings as you. So you were there before Gretzky, and you were there after Gretzky. Now, the Kings were pretty good. They had, they had, a, they had a stretch where they were pretty good even before Gretzky got there. But that whole scenario when it came together, what was it like? Take us through what it was like for you hearing about the trade and then eventually being able – you'd obviously call his games as an, as an opponent, mm -hmm. being able to call his games as his home announcer. You know, I had heard rumors the Kings might get Wayne Gretzky. And my first thought was, like everybody, that's, that's not going to happen. But then I kept hearing it, and I thought, I'm going to call Bruce McNall, who owned the team at that time, mm -hmm. and I'm going to ask him. 
but I wasn't sure I should ask him that. So I called and I said, how many games are we going to do on TV? And Bruce was, Bruce was a great em, employer because you never had the feeling he's the boss. He could come in here and we'd be laughing and having fun. Mm -hmm. And so he said, well, we're going to do quite a few games, blah, blah, blah. And so I thought, well, I'm going to go for it. So I said, tell me this. You're going to sign Wayne Gretzky? <laughs> and there was this pause. And he said, tell me what you think of this. We change our colors. We change our logo. And Wayne models the new uniform. I said, if you pull that off, it's going to be unbelievable. And he said, I think we're going to get it done. I could have fainted. I could... I thought, oh, my God, they're going to get this done, maybe. So they were going to announce it the next week, and I wasn't sure it was done yet. I went into the forum on a Monday, and Jerry West, who's still general manager of the Lakers, he said, come here. And I walked over, and he whispered to me, the deal is done. He said, what? He said, the deal is done. I said, how do you know that? He said, I played golf yesterday with someone who knows. And it turns out later... He played with Bruce McNall. She so <laughs> said, the deal is done. I couldn't believe it I, because I realized this is going to take that team from a team that sometimes had some success mm -hmm. but was not a team that was in the mainstream of the NHL, and it's going to move them right up to the top, and that's exactly what happened. All of a sudden, people wanted season tickets. They called. They sold like 6,000 in a couple of days. People called. I want season tickets. I guess on the phone they'd say, we don't know what the prices are. I don't care. Here's my credit card. Put me down for four. And around the league, the sale of Kings jerseys and jackets and caps went right to number one. Everybody in this city and around the league wanted to say, I saw Wayne Gretzky play. I said it would be like if you and I talked to somebody today who said, I saw Babe Ruth in person play baseball. We'd say, tell us about that. Now, as the years go by... There are going to be youngsters who are didn't have that opportunity to see Wayne come up to those of us who did and say, tell me about seeing him night after night. And in broadcasting it, I always went to the games thinking, am I going to have a chance tonight to see and describe something on the air that I've never seen before? Is it going to be another record? Is it going to be a great move? Are we going to see something we've never seen? Sometimes we didn't. But sometimes you would. And I had the great pleasure of calling it when he passed Gordy Howe in points. Then four years later when he passed him in goals. I even had, and it wasn't such a pleasure then, he was with Edmonton when he became the all-time assist leader in yeah. the league. So I had a chance to do that. The, the record of his, that th this just boggles my mind. And I don't know if a lot of people realize this. He scored 894 goals. If Wayne Gretzky never scored one goal he'd still be the all-time leading scorer in the history of the game just on assists. I mean, that is unbelievable. And uh, uh, to be traded, I think it's the greatest trade of all time. People say, well, Babe Ruth, Babe Ruth, when he was traded, was not the home run hitter we got to know. He was a pitcher. Mm -hmm. This was a guy in his prime, holder of, when he retired, 61 NHL records, and he gets traded in his prime, and everybody knew then, and they've said it, players... If Wayne Gretzky can get traded, anybody can get traded. And, and I believe that. Uh, so I think it was the greatest sports trade of all time. A line that Dave and I often use jokingly is, I promised Mess I wouldn't do this. Yeah. Because yeah. at the press conference, obviously he starts tearing up yeah. and he stops himself and he 
referring to Mark Messier, of mm. course. So it's always amazing as an outsider not being from Los Angeles. You know, New York is a people don't realize how big a hockey town it is. It was mm-hmm. with the Islanders and the Rangers, obviously, were big rivals, and the Devils kind of came and once they got good. It also became kind of a three way rivalry, but that really flipped the switch for hockey in Southern California. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people say that's why the Ducks were were mm-hmm. positioned in Anaheim was because of Wayne Gretzky. He doesn't want to take credit for that, but I think it is a, a major factor, and it's a major factor right today as uh, the high school hockey league. Jim Fox is the commissioner. We've got Eight high school teams in the Los Angeles area playing hockey. Anaheim Ducks started it years ago down in Orange County. So there's a place for those youngsters when they grow up. They don't have to go back east. The, the, the uh, quality and caliber of hockey back there right now would be better for a youngster. But they want to get them somewhere to say, I want to play hockey. And, and we're seeing California-born players drafted and playing in the National Hockey League. And I think a lot of that is due to the popularity of the Kings when Wayne Gretzky got here. There's more rinks. We need more rinks now because so many kids are, are wanting to play hockey and, and getting a chance to do so. Yeah, I tell you what, I went, I covered a couple of the games last weekend, and I went up to the Simi Valley Isoplex. That place is fantastic. I know Cal State Northridge has their club hockey team that plays there, but the rinks and how they're set up, it's the National Hockey League rink and then an Olympic rink. Mm-hmm. So you got kids that can do some tutorial stuff on one sheet of ice, and then you have the game action on the other sheet of ice. Could you imagine this 20 years ago, 30 years ago? No, I don't think so. And I, I think uh, Wayne couldn't either. When he got here, he said he would drive and see kids in the street playing street hockey, and he thought, we've got to get rinks here for them to get on the ice. My grandson plays out in the Simi Valley, so... Uh, I go out to that rink. Uh, I was there last Sunday morning, and uh, and he loves it. He's nine years old, and he's played since he was four or five. And uh, it's great to see them have that opportunity, and they got the great rink up there in Santa Clarita and, and elsewhere. Mm. And the Kings participate each year by sending players out to those various rinks, meet with the, with the, skate, with the players, meet with the fans, sign autographs, and, uh, and I think it's a great way for the Kings to get involved in the future of hockey where some of these kids are going to have an opportunity to play in the NHL. And I think the nice thing about it, too, is you get guys like Daryl Evans and Jamie Storr. Right. I go up to the Toyota Sports Center in El Segundo where the Kings practice at, and you'll have kids out there, whether it's high school or even some of the, the little the little ones, going out there skating around, doing some drills and, and whatnot. But it's great when you have guys that have played the game, that are ambassadors of the game, mm-hmm. actually out there spending some time sharing their moments and obviously their expertise with some of these kids because they do have aspirations. And like you mentioned, it's nice that these kids don't have to go up to Canada at all or go to the East Coast. They can stay right here in Southern California or maybe up in the Pacific Northwest and play the game that they love without having to spend the extra dollars to move away from their families. Yeah, Daryl Evans and Jim Fox they, uh, and Sean O'Donnell too. Mm-hmm. And they're all out there. Jamie Storr, you mentioned, some of the guys who played with the Kings still live in this area always willing to come out and do those clinics and help those kids. And uh, Daryl even runs one for a women's hockey clinic. And a lot of women come out, they put the equipment on, and they want to learn to play. And uh, so, uh, you know, giving back to this community by those players is very important. And, and a lot of NHL players do it in all their communities. They're, they're the most accessible athletes. They're willing to, to uh, talk with the fans, help with the fans. Luke Robitaille is great with the fans. And, and it's nice to see them teach some of these kids uh, the, the proper way to play, whether the kids ever go on and, and play or not. But 
it's uh, it's great for the kids to meet these guys who played and learn how to play the game. Based on your experience covering basketball, baseball, football, and now hockey, do you feel that the, I guess the NHL players are the most accessible to fans? Well, I think so. They're they've been very good. Uh, I haven't had a lot of. I have not been around Major League Baseball that much or the NBA mm. in that capacity, but our players, uh, I see them greet fans and meet fans and, and uh, uh, cooperative with, uh, with radio and TV and, uh, and the newspapers, and, and I think that's so important. And for years, I felt they had to do that mm. to, to raise the interest in this sport. You know, years ago, and this is no knock on these guys, but – Gordie Howe, Bobby Orr, they didn't grow up with people interviewing them on radio and TV. Yeah. And I think as great as they were, it was kind of a detriment that they came from Canada, they were kind of reserved, didn't say very much, and were not very good interviewees. Now, you get an 18-year-old kid comes up and he's been like he's like he's had his own radio or TV show for years. He's so poised, even high school athletes. I watch high school football on Fox and they interview them, and, and they're just used to having cameras and microphones around now, and that benefits the sport. I remember, this is a few years ago, a lot of years ago, actually, in Torrance, there's a Best Buy on the corner of Sepulveda, and I remember a big group of people coming around a couple different players, and there was two white guys that were standing there. Both of them were tall, and I walked around the people, stood a little bit taller, obviously, and... I see one of the guys, he had long, long hair. And I was like, okay, that looks like an NBA player. And I get closer to him, and it's Sasha Vujicic. So the other guy that was next to Sasha was quiet, and he was actually by himself. Didn't speak much English. And I was like, that's Andrzej Kopitar. Kopitar yeah. And he was one of the nicest guys, didn't speak very good English at all. But I'm like, welcome to the United States, totally nice said a couple of words to me, and it was just fascinating. But now you see Kopitar, and everyone loves him. Everyone oh. talks to him. But these Kings players, they're in Manhattan Beach. They're in Hermosa Beach. And I remember them winning the Cup in 2012 and 2014. They'd make appearances on the regular, and all you had to do was go up to them and shake their hands, yeah. introduce yourself, and they're like, what's up? And they love that parade. You know, after the downtown parade, they have the one on the beach cities. There, yeah. And they love that because they're seeing people on the side – where I go to your cleaners, I eat at your restaurant, yeah. and it's like their hometown. And and all those people love it, too. And, uh, yeah, they're, uh, uh, Kopitar, he, he speaks so well English, you know, mm. and he's from Slovenia, and the story is his grandmother taught him English. She was a teacher. She taught him English, and he went to her as a youngster and said he'd pretend he was the number one star, <laughs> and she'd interview him, but he said do it in English. So he got used to, to answering questions in English. And, yeah, he's uh, got a great command of the English language and, and a really good guy. And I hope he signs that contract and stays here for another 10 years. Speaking of contracts, it's good to see the Kings getting to, to some of the guys that are in good shape now coming into the offseason. Dustin Brown has been reported to be in better yeah. shape. Jonathan Quick has lost a little bit of weight but still in superb shape. Challenging offseason because of the Jarrett Stoll departure, also Slava Voinov and Mike Richards. Do you feel the team is better or worse from last season's start because of those guys being removed? Well, I don't know about those guys being removed, but I think what we needed, and nobody likes to miss the playoffs, Yeah. but the end of the year last year, I felt on certain nights this team looks exhausted. 
There were certain nights they played well. Went into Madison Square Garden, beat the Rangers six to one, mm. and, and on that trip, one in New Jersey and uh, Long Island and and in uh, New York. And I thought that if we can get in, we may do like we did before, and all of a sudden just raise the level of play. But other nights, and uh, on the end of that trip, losing on the road in Minnesota to a team that played the night before, mm-hmm. flying to Chicago, or being in Chicago, Chicago flying in from Winnipeg, and the Kings losing to them. There were nights I thought they're exhausted. So I think after three years of long seasons, short off seasons, 64 playoff games, more playoff games than any team had played in that stretch, mm-hmm. they needed this long off season, And they seem to have benefited from that. They've worked hard. I think they, they, they knew I've, I've got this time now to get in shape. And also, I hope they were embarrassed and upset watching other teams play in the playoffs. Like, we're going to get back and show that we're, we're a contender again. And that's the attitude that I kind of see down there uh, during the preseason. I always feel that they have that second or third gear in them. But to play devil's advocate... Why would they be tired and the Chicago Blackhawks not be? Because it seems like they're the energy energizer bunny. Like every season, they are just they are contenders no matter what, either in the Cup final or in the Western Conference finals. Well, I don't know. Uh, you know, a lot of people could say, and I don't think it's that much of a deal anymore the travel. But mm-hmm. uh, you're in the Midwest and the East. Yeah, there is a big difference, and players who played in the in it's going to be interesting uh, with um, uh, Lucic coming from Boston where uh, most nights you're back in your own city. The Islanders one year said out of 41 games on the road, they slept in their own bed 34 <laughs> nights of the, of the 41 games. And, and then a guy gets traded here, and it's not so bad now because there's so many teams here, but years ago our closest rival was Vancouver or Colorado. They realized you're in the air and on the road all the time. And uh, so, you know, Chicago uh, – Maybe they learned over those years and uh, just how to pace themselves. And uh, I, I really don't know the exact answer to that. But, uh, you know, they've uh, the one year the Kings uh, eliminate them, so they had a little bit of an mm. earlier exit. And the Kings went on to that, uh, you know, Stanley Cup final again. So it's, uh, I don't know. I, I just don't know the exact answer to, to why they would keep going year after year. And it'll be interesting with them this year. They've had to get rid of some players like they did after they won the first cup. Mm-hmm. Had to get rid of about 10 players because of the salary cap. Bob, in terms of Daryl Sutter, obviously we know this guy's a fantastic coach. Has has his message still resonate with the players or might be a situation where has it been? Has he been around for too long and maybe there might be a time to look for a change down the road? Well, I, I, I think it still does. I, I'm, I'm really not in... The, the way that I should answer that because I'm not in the dressing room before mm-hmm. the game or between periods. And I, players don't, players won't come up to me and say, I'm sick of listening to that coach. Mm-hmm. And I don't expect them to. Um, the theory is after so many years, yes, it gets old. The difference this year is for the first time since Daryl Sutter has been here, there are positions open on this team and young kids are coming in and they look pretty good. Uh, you know, a guy like Michael Mersh, Jordan Wheel, O'Neal, other guys coming in who haven't heard that all the time, and I think they're going to be the future stars of this team. Whether they're ready right now or not, I don't know. But uh, So I think the transition in players 
especially these days with players moving all over at the end of a year from team to team. Right. I, I think this year a hundred and some players change teams. I hate that. I've got in my head what number <laughs> they are and what color they wear. Yeah. <laughs> and now wait a minute, he's number what and he's with who? So, uh, but it, it is interesting to see the turnover now and to see general managers have to look years ahead as far as signing people because of the salary cap you're gonna, issues you might run into. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, Chicago's done a great job, you know, bringing bringing in the right people, and uh, uh, and it's great to see because I've done grew up in Chicago when they couldn't draw three thousand people to a game, and uh, and then even in the years when Bob Holford was coaching there and they wouldn't show the games mm -hmm. on TV, they lost a whole generation of fans, and they weren't very good. And now all of a sudden the games, all the games are on. They're winning Stanley Cups, and uh, 22,000 people show up every night. Well, the Kings recharge for this season. Do you th still think that Chicago is the team to beat? Well, I'll tell you one thing. The Pacific Division is going to be tough. You've got yeah. some, we've got to knock out somebody who made it last year. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of teams in this division have improved. A lot of teams in the West have improved. So – when you really look at it, we mentioned this last night on the telecast, the Kings missed by two points. Yeah. If they could have won some overtime games, they had terrible overtime records. Shootouts even worse. And shootouts. <laughs> they'd have been a, maybe a 107, 108-point team. Yeah. And everybody say, they're in the play. What a great season they had. But you get that close, what did we end up with, 99 points? I think 90, uh, with 40 90, wins. It was 94, wasn't it? Yeah, 95. 95. So you're, you had a pretty good season, but a few extra wins there in, in that overtime and shootout, you'd have an excellent season and maybe do something in the playoffs. So they were the fifth-best defensive team. Uh, Daryl still wants them to be responsible defensively. And they weren't a bad team, except the image is, well, you didn't even make the playoffs. You know? So you didn't have a good year. Gazal and I go back and forth with this in, in baseball because I'm not a big sabermetrics guy. I do like some of the components of it. One of them is war. Same thing in basketball with, with Purr. Purr. And now we have, in the National Hockey League, we have the compilations of statistics with the Corsi and the Fenwick and whatnot. Are you a, are, do you like the sabermetrics? Do you like how the game has been broken down like that with puck possession and, and whatnot? You know, I'll be honest with you. I couldn't even explain to you what those things mean. <laughs> well, see, here, here, here's the interesting thing: is what what I like to do with those metrics. There's a, there's a metric that an old hockey guy taught, told me about. Is like this is like in the '80s. Said defensemen that carry the puck. Okay, he's like Paul Coffey. Obviously, scores a lot of goals, but he's not good because he scores goals. Which you know, as a 12 year old, didn't make any sense to me. But he said, no, he's good because he can carry the puck and he doesn't get bumped off the puck. So I always thought about that. And then when I started watching Barry Melrose, he made the same point. He's like that Scott Niedermeyer is a great defenseman because he's able to carry the puck without. So you sent me a met. David sent me a metric about there's a like the Kings were I think the tops in the league the last three years in this. There's a percentage based on how effectively defensemen carry the puck, and so that one metric was like all right, this is something people have been telling me for 25 years. Mm. So they've just figured out a way to quantify it. So that makes sense. So I like I like those types of numbers that quantify something that you and I and David can watch a game and see. So I like those those types of numbers that make the game a little bit easier as a broadcaster or a fan to say, okay, here we go. Now I get what Melrose and Micheletti and these guys are talking about. 
I think uh, Drew Doughty, when you look at him and, and the way he can come out of the zone with a puck, and, uh, you know, years ago it was simply this guy can get you out of trouble because he can skate so well. I would have, you mentioned uh, Paul Coffey. I would pay money just to see Paul Coffey skate, mm -hmm. not even play hockey. <laughs> I mean, he was such, in my mind, the best skater I've ever seen. And they said he, he, he would not he wear his skates two sizes too small, wouldn't wear socks, jam his feet in there and curl his toes under so that his skate fit like a glove. I said, he must have been the happiest guy at the end of the game, <laughs> win or lose, just to get those skates <laughs> off his feet. But he was a marvelous skater. Uh, so I, I know some coaches really rely a lot on it. Some don't want it. Some probably think I could have told you years ago I could watch Paul Coffey skate or somebody else skate right. and tell you they can get us out of trouble. That's all I care about. So I, I'm kind of a dinosaur in that. I, I just don't get into the into all of that uh, other, you know, what a fancy stats is what Jimmy calls it. Speaking from the broadcast booth, do you get a sense at all that some of the players care about not necessarily the individual accomplishments, but the at least their recognition or nomination. Kopitar for the Selkie, Dowdy for the Norris, Quick for the Vesna. I mean, I just going back to the '94 final. It seemed like it was Henrik Lundqvist and then the other guy, which was weird because Jonathan Quick was the Conn Smythe winner in 2012, and yeah. I, I I really felt should have been the Vesna winner that season. But it seems like it's always these West Coast guys are getting overlooked. I mean, you got a, might get a mention of a Sandin brother or a Thornton or a Pavelski, but when it's here in Los Angeles, outside of maybe Corey Perry in Anaheim or even Ryan Getzloff, you don't hear too much about these West Coast guys. Well, the problem is uh, most of the people uh, in the East are in bed when we're <laughs> playing the game, so they don't know how good they're. You know, we, we would go somewhere and, on the road, and somebody comes and say, gee whiz, Kopitar is really good. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we've known that for several years in L.A. And you're just seeing it now. He plays both ends of the ice. He is good. Uh so that, that is a detriment. I think those players want to win those awards, mm -hmm. but I think another great thing about hockey is they stress the team aspect. They don't ever want to call attention to themselves. Sometimes that's a detriment to the sport because you want the publicity and everything. Sure. I don't want them to go overboard like uh, some other sports where a guy makes a routine tackle and acts like he's just uh, been the greatest player ever in football. Mm -hmm. But they are brought up, it is a team sport. Now, I think in, in their minds, in the back of their heads, yeah, it'd be nice if I could win the Vesna, if I could win the Norris Trophy. But they don't display that. They don't come out and say, my goal is to win the Norris Trophy. Mm -hmm. Drew Doughty's goal is to be an effective player on this team and have the team win another Stanley Cup. And, and that's the way they all think. Do you get excited when you watch, uh, well, it's going to come up next year, the World Cup of Hockey or the Olympics during the, the All-Star break? Do you get excited watching that as opposed to necessarily the regular National Hockey League action? You know, I'm not a proponent of pro athletes in the Olympics. Really? I, I we know, agree, Bob, then we agree. I know it's great talent, great mm -hmm. hockey, but I go back to the feeling that this country had in 1980, and without amateurs in there, we'll never have that again. Mm -hmm. That was the greatest thing where those college players beat some of the great teams in the world and had no business beating them. How they did it, nobody can still figure out in that two-week period what happened that they beat great teams. 
just would be professional teams in Europe. And, you know, I've talked to some of the Russian players on that team. They said, we went home and people said, you lost to schoolboys. That's what they call the college <laughs> players. Schoolboys beat you. But we'll never have that feeling again. The pros have all the trophies to win and everything. The Olympics, in my opinion, should be for the amateurs. Interesting. I, there's a question I've been dying to ask you. So you've seen, I think over the last 20 years, the NHL has added nine teams. I think the uniqueness of the NHL in terms of the playoffs is we can compare, because although there's more teams now, it's still the 16 teams in the playoffs and you're moving forth. You were a professional broadcaster for the four dynasties that kind of set up modern hockey, which were the Canadians from 75 to 79, then the Islanders won four in a row from 80 to 83, and Edmonton then came on. They won four in five years. I think mm-hmm. there was a break. As, uh, was it Calgary or Montreal won in, in, in between? I think Calgary. Those three teams. Give me a, give me a quick line about – I mean, because you saw – we saw three dynasties back to back to back, and since then I don't think anybody's won any more than two in a row, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I remember, and I, I go back, and, and th- that's when I thought – I loved the game back in the in the seventies when I'd see Guy Lafleur flying down yeah. the ice with no helmet and his hair Wavy flying. Hair. <laughs> oh, you know, it was just and everybody could see it and the shots were from top of the circle and everybody saw the puck go in the net and scream and holler. Then we went to where we are now with everybody drives to the net and it looks like a rugby scrum and uh, uh, and all of a sudden the puck is in the net and you wonder who touched that, who who shot it. So I, I love those years when Lafleur and those guys were playing and you go into Montreal and you knew in the first five minutes you got to survive those five minutes. Then you might be okay. Um, then the Islanders. And, and to see Denny Potvin, and, and I just uh, the last couple of years he's doing uh, stuff for Fox now, and we've had meetings down at Terranea, and I've had a chance to talk with him and, and, uh, and see him. You know, like Butch Goring was a great friend of ours and still is and went to the Islanders and right. was a, was the catalyst that they needed to win those four. I, mean, I bring them up because, you know, obviously they're not playing in Uniondale anymore. Yeah. And then Al Arbor passed away recently. Yeah. So it's been it's been kind of spinning around that, the, you know, Uniondale's over. They're moving to Brooklyn. Yeah. And then Al Arbor passed. And that was a huge dynasty, you know, kind of fueled stuff in New York because New York is a big-time Ranger town. And when the Islanders got good, oh, wow, there's really a rival there. They, yeah. they won Cups. Yeah, they were they were so good. I mean, the, the, some of those guys, Clark Gillies and Bobby Nystrom, and, you know, you knew going in there you are you are playing one of the great dynasties. Billy in, Smith, you know, Billy Smith, the yeah. money goalie they talk yeah. about. Who, uh, uh, yeah, you didn't want to be around the net for, with Billy Smith in there, but um, – uh, then in the uh, Oilers, you know, I remember when they came in and they weren't very good in 79 and uh, the Kings would lose to them. And I think, how can you lose to the Edmonton Oilers? Well, then, as they said, they all grew up together. They had all those young guys and they grew up together. And uh, you'd go in there and, and they were so good. And uh, they knew it. Uh, and I've said this before and I'll, I'll say it publicly. They were one of the most arrogant teams I think I've ever seen, led by Glenn Saylor with that smirk on his <laughs> face behind them. I could not get over that, and that's why uh, beating them in the Miracle on Manchester was one of the great great moments in uh, my career with the Kings. Yeah, in fact, their five-year run was disrupted because Steve Smith 
had banked a shot off a Grand Fuhr skate oh, yeah. and into the net, and they lost that game yeah. and obviously lost a series to the and Calgary And then the Flames. next year they win, and Gretzky is the first guy he gives the cup to is Steve Smith. Yeah. And then they go back in 91. Gretzky was obviously here in, in Los Angeles. Bob, you've done so many things in your career, and just a couple of notes. LA Kings Hall of Fame, Wisconsin Hockey Hall of Fame, Hollywood Walk of Fame. You mentioned earlier Foster Hewitt. You also won the Memorial Award. Mm-hmm. Can you list anything, whether it's professionally or personally, that you are most proud of in your career? Well, I think longevity with one team. I'm, I'm a real proponent of not jumping around, taking different jobs with different teams. I'm very, I'm very pleased that I have had this many years with the Los Angeles Kings, uh, 43 years. As I mentioned, I listened to Bob Elson do the White Sox, and he did it for 40 years, and I remember thinking, 40 years <laughs> he's done a this team and now here I'm 43 so um, I'm, I'm proud of that I'm proud of those other accomplishments yes but I don't think and I said this uh, at the Hall of Fame I don't think anybody including players ever starts a career saying my goal is to get into the Hall of Fame your goal is to do what you set out to do what you enjoy doing and do it for years and do it well and still enjoy it and, uh, you know, maybe make an impact in, in what you're doing in any job. Your, your goal is to have a job in the area in which you are passionate about. And the other, those other things come along as the years go by, and, and it's very nice. And uh, I'll tell you a quick story about the Hollywood Walk of Fame. You know, they have it on Hollywood Boulevard mm-hmm. there, and they block off part of the street. So my sister-in-law and her husband came out from Wisconsin, and she said on a Friday, I, I want to see that uh, Hollywood Walk of Fame. So I said, we can go down there. So we go down <laughs> there. And where mine was going to be was barricaded with some wooden uh, horses, you know, the, the barricades around it so nobody walked on it. And so she said, I want a picture of this. So we're standing this around this and getting pictures of this these wooden barricades around it. And I, I know people are walking by thinking there's – 2,900 of these stars. <laughs> Why do they want this one? You can't even see it. So a woman and her, about her 22 or 3-year-old daughter stood right off to my shoulder, and they were talking to each other, and the mother said, I wonder whose star this is. So I, I didn't say anything, and they're still standing there talking and talking, and, yeah, she said, I wonder whose star this is going to be. So I turned to her, and I said, it's my star. She said, yeah, right. <laughs> and, and walked down the street. It was perfect. You know, she said, yeah, right. It's your star. So uh, it was just a, a good thing that I could talk about the day of the ceremony, you know, that that happened. But any of those, I mean, you're, you're, you're honored by that, obviously. And I am. Uh, but I'm more honored with the fact that I've had a chance to be in broadcasting for 55 years, and that's what I wanted to do, and that I've had a chance to be with the Kings for this many years and then to see him win a couple of Stanley Cups. You, know, you mentioned, because you said you called the football at Wisconsin. Were you calling hockey then? Because I know you were with the Blackhawks before the Kings, correct? No, no, I was, uh, I was doing hockey. I first started doing hockey in Wisconsin for the University of Wisconsin. Badger Bob Johnson mm-hmm, was the mm-hmm. coach, went on to win a Stanley Cup in Pittsburgh. Uh, and then I came right from there to the LA Kings. Oh, that's great. Okay. Yeah. And, and I was doing football and hockey at the same time. I mean, same 
seasons, which overlapped. So I'd fly with a football team. I'd do a hockey game Friday night, catch up with a football team in Purdue at Purdue or Indiana or Northwestern, do that game in the afternoon, back to Madison, go right from the airport to the arena and, and do a hockey game that night. And, and love doing all that, you know. You weren't making any money, but you were, your passion was just, I want to do as much as I can. I want to be on the air. I want to get the experience. And if I'm not making that much money, I, don't, I just want to do this all the time. And, and I think that's the passion that all of us have for this job or, or any job that you get. You've got to have that passion. And I always tell people the most important word, I think, in any job or any walk of life is preparation. The minute you're not prepared to do your job is when you start to lose your job. And I'm, pr I'm probably spending more time in preparation now than I did 43 years ago because there is so much more information available. And you're always worried some avid fan who sits there and gets all this information is going to hear me say something and say, that's not right, he's wrong and you start to lose a little credibility. So there's a little pressure that way of keeping up, and, and there's no way you can keep up with everything that's out there now. It's, it's unbelievable. Speaking of preparation, and, and Ghazal is the complete opposite of me on this, but I was a horrible student in elementary, in high school, and even in undergrad at San Diego State. And the light finally clicked when I went to grad school back east at Northeastern. And so instead of exchanging business cards what we're doing here at Studio 54 is I brought in just a, a sample of what Gazal and I do, but I brought in a game chart. And so I'm going to have you look at this, Bob, and you can critique out loud or tell me what I need to change or what I shouldn't change because I noticed you brought in some material as well. And I want to give an idea because I watched this twins. A, li a little while ago. We're twins. Fox Sports West yeah. and actually had done a couple different features on how you broadcast from the booth with Jim and even before that with Nick Nixon on how you'll do hockey games. And I noticed in front of you right now, it looks like to me, sitting from where I'm at, is it looks like old school, an old school CD holder. So you'd have the CDs in their little sleeves, but instead of that, you have, it looks like little flashcards with notes on them, correct? Yeah, and I write all these uh, handwritten, and it's just a way for me to kind of get some of these in my head. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm looking at your uh, is a football it chart. It is football, yeah. And it's the same I used to use when I was doing football. It's a, it's a little fancier than what I had. <laughs> but, you know, to critique what somebody else uses is difficult because you use whatever makes you comfortable and makes you effective doing the game. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody does things differently. You know, I'll go look at another hockey announcer, and and he's got always oh, got a lot of really fancy stuff. But if that works for him, and this works for you, and Gasol, that works for you, that's the bottom line. Mm -hmm. In the in the excitement and the midst of a game, something happens, and you know where to go on your chart to say, I know I've got a note on that, and you come up with it, mm. and boy, that sounds great to the listener. He says, Wow, that just happened, and these guys knew. You know, two, three games ago, the guy did the same thing. And, and, and I'll say, you know, so-and-so scores. That's his fifth goal in the last seven games. And, and people think I've got that stored up here. Mm -hmm. Some years ago, I may have had it stored up there. It's not the, the storeroom is not that big these days. But I know where to go and get it. I've got it written down. And uh, it sounds great 
to the listener. So, uh, you know, these look these look great. They're they're fancier than I ever did, <laughs> but it's the same kind of the same chart with the boxes and you put the player's name and number and height and weight and what year he is in school and and where he's from. Um, so everybody does things a little differently and and it, as I say, whatever works for you is perfect and whatever works for Gasol is perfect and and I have what I use. So there is no right or wrong in this. Well, it's interesting. We were talking before. I made a change this. I'm going to try. I read the, there's an article in Sports Illustrated about Ian Eagle. Mm -hmm. And he writes everything out longhand as you do, Bob. And I remember when I met you years ago, you were still doing everything by hand. And in the article, they point out that when you write stuff out, it's a better imprint in the brain. Now, I've been using computers for years, and it's easier for us because you're archiving things. So mm -hmm. when you do a team one year, the next year, you know, the kids are juniors, you move up to seniors, and you add the new kids that come in. But I was talking to another friend of mine who was a school teacher, and she was kind of explaining the cognitive action behind that. Like, we teach kids to write that way, mm -hmm. particularly in terms of math, she says. That's how children, you know, five, six, seven, eight-year-old children imprint math skills and timetables into their brain by writing them out. So I said, all right, I'm going to try going back. And I used to do it this way old school, go back, and this is kind of completely incomplete, but you write out, you know, obviously the players, and then you code other things like, for example, last this year's stats are in black, last year's stats are in red, mm -hmm. and then I will add notes and I have you know kind of it all. I'm going to lay it out like I would do on a computer, except I'm going to do it all by hand this year. And it's it is interesting because you do you do click on the synapses fire a little bit different when you're writing things out than when you're typing things. I can do it a lot faster writing it out than I can on a computer typing <laughs> yeah. it up, yeah. making mistakes, and go back and I'd say I can I can just write this out and get it done. Um, when I spoke at the University of uh, Iowa, uh, we could go to communication studies students and radio and TV. I'm sure they looked at this and thought, wow, that is really old-fashioned. You know? mm -hmm. But as I say, the bottom line is when you're on the air, whatever works for you is perfect because you want that instant knowledge of where to get that stat, where to find that player's identification, some notes about him, and however you do it, is is perfect have you ever have you done everything that you've wanted to do in your professional career you know i i suppose uh, pretty much uh, uh you know i wanted to i wanted to see the kings win a stanley cup before i had to retire and mm -hmm. we've seen two of them um and and gotten some nice accolades and uh yeah i'm i don't know if you always want to say you're satisfied but as long as i feel I can do this game, mm -hmm. a very fast game, and still do it without making too many mistakes and calling wrong names and numbers. I think that's what's happened to some announcers, even like players, who should have known when to retire when they're not at the top of their game. And some announcers who started you know, calling people by wrong names and guys who played several years ago, uh, when it comes to that... And I always think of Wayne Gretzky. Wayne Gretzky stopped playing when he still could have been one of the greatest players in the game, mm -hmm. but he wasn't playing up to his standards. And he knew before I start dropping and say, people, boy, people say I used to see him when he was really good. Look at him now. He didn't want that to happen. And I don't think any of us do. So there is a time when you're going to know, okay, I, I think that's it. The article the other day on Dick Enberg, saying next year is his last year. Mm -hmm. 
really hit home with me because people are saying, how many years are you going to do this? I'm going to be 77 in two weeks. And the line that Dick Enberg said, he read it somewhere. Gasol's read all these books. He's been quoting them. He knows probably who said it. <laughs> he said, no one on their deathbed has ever said, gee, I wish I'd have worked longer. You know, you want to, and my wife and I, we want to have me retire when we can still enjoy traveling and enjoy other things in life. And you don't want to wait so long to, when you finally retire and say, well, now we both can't get around. We can't go anywhere. I worked too long. Mm -hmm. So See, the, the advantage for somebody like yourself, though, let's say, you know, and I don't want to start any rumors here, when you do decide to step away from the Kings, who's going to turn down, if you call somebody and say, hey, I want to do a couple of spring training games down in Arizona or this and that, who's going to turn you down to do that? Like I was looking at what Letter David Letterman is now going to do a travel show. And you know, it completely makes sense. He's out of the grind of the day-to-day, -day, but he still kind of wants to contribute. And I think he'll be a fascinating host going to see him on vacation in Thailand with that big beard of his. <laughs> um, you know what I would like to do if, if, I, uh, if I decide to leave? <clears throat> excuse me. If I decide to leave play-by-play uh, -play broadcasting, I've always said a great way to stay in it a little bit, to me, would be to be the off-camera announcer on Jeopardy or something <laughs> yeah. like that. You walk in, they hand you a script. Now, I hope I'm not simplifying this. I know those guys do a great job. Johnny Gilbert is the off-camera announcer, and uh, Alex Trebek, Canadian, big hockey fan, <laughs> does the game. But you do, I think, two days six seven shows and then you, you you don't do anything for a week and you come back i think that's the way it goes but i always thought that would be great you walk in they hand here's who you introduce there's no memorization of names and numbers uh you you have time to do it they're not running around and changing positions and you have to know who went where it would be a nice way to keep your hands in radio and tv or tv without having to do it every day and travel and memorize names and numbers uh, so i don't know whether that would ever come up or not and i'll have to talk to pat sajak about that how he's about, a, how about, he's how about iowa calls you back to to do the alumni game every year you'd go back for that right the the spring game no i don't think you know one time i got a call and somebody called me and she was a producer and she said would you do two raiders preseason games on tv and I said, you know, two preseason games. There's going to be 150 players on the field that I don't know. And the next game, there's going to be another 150, and then I'm through. If you're doing the whole season, you got to do that preparation. But I said, you know, I don't want to do a football game where I've got to all of a sudden – know what I'm talking about, and there's that many players on the field, and I haven't done football for years. So I said, I, I really am not interested in that. And Dick Enberg, again, at one time, I think the Angels, when he was going to quit, wanted him to do just the home games. And he said, you know, to do just the home games, I've got to do more work than I'm, if I'm with the team every day. And during the broadcast, you can say, you know, yesterday this happened – you have to catch up when that team comes back home with what they did. So I, I think once I say, look, I've 
I've had it here as far as play-by-play goes. That'll be it. And if something else comes along that's really easy to do, but you still have that bug to do a little bit on, on radio or TV, I'd enjoy doing that. All right, so let's say this. Hypothetically speaking, I'm going to lay this down for you guys. I got the keys to your car for the rest of your career. Your last season as a professional broadcaster, I tell you, Bob, you are not allowed to call LA Kings hockey or, in fact, any National Hockey League coverage. You can pick the sport, you can pick the team, or and you can pick the network. For an entire year, you cover one sport, one team, or with one network. What would that be? I think it would be college football. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Even though there's a lot of people on the field and a lot of players running around, but I just love, as I said before, that atmosphere, and and uh, I would rather be with one team. And I think there are a lot of guys. Dave Strader now is doing yeah. the national. Now he's going to be with Dallas. And he said, you know, and this is the way I feel. I want to have some feeling about who wins the game mm. when I get through. Some You're going to have peaks and valleys. Sometimes your your team is not very good and you're upset. Other times they're good. But I want to have an invested interest in who wins that game because I think that makes you a better announcer. If I do two games, and I've done a couple on the network where I didn't care who won, Chicago, St. Louis, you walk away and you think, okay, it went okay, but there was not that in that involvement uh uh, that passion of having your team win or lose the game. And and I've always enjoyed that, and I think that's why I've been very happy sticking with one team that I'm passionate about, and, and I want that involvement of whether you win or lose. So if it was college football that you'd be calling, would it be Wisconsin or Iowa? Oh. You know, I say you always have to stay true to your school, right? <laughs> right. So. <laughs> And I had four great years at Iowa, two Rose Bowl teams, Forrest Evashevsky coaching, and they were, they were great. They had some great players. And, um, and I, uh, I enjoy the campus atmosphere. I enjoy those game days. It was so much, uh, so great to be back there last week and see the enthusiasm in those small Big Ten towns where that football week of a home game, everything revolves around that, uh, that football game. I warn you, Bob, this is the most influential podcast recorded in this studio. So the Big Ten, the Big Ten Network may, may be after you. Uh, you brought up Alex Trebek. So, and, and Dave and I talk about this often because we do veer into entertainment a lot on the show. I went to a Kings – I mean, I used to have friends who worked at Fox. So I would get tickets to Kings games uh, this maybe five, six years ago. And I remember Mr. T being kind of a semi-regular uh, – he would appear semi-regularly at Kings games. I mean, he, and he's a real fan. Who are some of like the celebrity fans that maybe you had interactions with over the years? Because you know, the Kings, obviously, definitely since Gretzky and probably before that, have always the forum always attracted a big celebrity mm-hmm. crowd as well. Well, probably the the two that I've had the most interaction with would be uh, Pat Sajak, who was a great friend of uh, Stu Nahan, and um, and Al Michaels. Al's a season ticket holder, and we've talked many times. I interviewed him about uh, the miracle uh, in 1980 and everything. And uh, I even said to him, I, I said, Al, you've done World Series, you've done Super Bowls, you've done everything. Where does that 1980 Lake Placid fit? He said, by far, number one. He said it was the unbelievable, the atmosphere there. And so he's, he's at Kings games when he can be there. Um, he used to, they, they used to want him, I think, in the uh, 
NFL City on a Friday, or he's doing Mon- when he was doing Monday night. They wanted him there on Saturday, and he didn't want to go because the Kings would be home on Saturday night. Mm-hmm. So he said, "I'll be there Sunday." So he is a a huge fan, a great guy, and a great broadcaster. Uh, so I enjoy uh, seeing him. I don't see him a lot uh, during the games because it, it, Staples is so big that uh, uh, you don't see people all the time. But um, those would be two of them. Uh, one that I, I got to know a little bit when we had our own team plane. Bruce McNall bought the plane, and we were flying somewhere, and John Candy would fly mm-hmm. on the plane with us. And I'll never forget one movie on the plane that John was on was Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. <laughs> and I think it's, a, it's one of the great movies of all time. So John was sitting across the aisle and a row in front of me. And I want, I had seen the movie enough. I wanted to watch him. I wanted to watch him watch his movie. <laughs> and he was kind of hunched down in the seat. And there'd be scenes where he'd be not laughing out loud, but quietly, and he'd be shaking. He was laughing so much. And I told him afterwards, I said, John, that is one of the funniest movies I've ever seen. And I said, I saw you laughing. He said, you know, I never saw the, the finished product. I couldn't believe it. And he said, we had a, the director who would shoot 100% more than we really needed. And he said, I was remembering some of the scenes that we did that didn't make it into the movie that were really funny. So uh, it was fun to watch him uh, on the plane watch that movie. But um, uh, I haven't had a, a lot of uh, interaction with other celebrities that come to, to the game. Goldie Hawn was around a lot mm-hmm. with Kurt Russell, you know, uh, down by the glass and I even told her once, I saw you I saw you in one of your funniest movies ever. She said, what was that? I said, The Duchess and Dirtwater Fox. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen She Oh, my gosh. She said, that was long ago. It was a second feature when they had double features. Mm-hmm. We went to see the first one. I said, well, let's stick around for this. Uh, George Siegel was in it with her, and it was the better of the two movies. It was hilarious. Bob, since we're on the Hollywood scene, you've done some other things outside of work with the Kings. You had a credit with Cheers. Mm -hmm. Uh, I do remember you doing the play-by-play work for the Mighty Ducks, the original movie, and also D2. Did you like doing those things? Was that a fun experience for you? Yeah, it was fun. The first time I ever got called for that, I was on a road trip, and I got home, and my mother was out visiting with us, and she said, "Uh, you got a call from somebody named Norman Jewison, and he wants to know if you want to be in a movie. This is my first year here. And I said, what? She said, well, here's his number. So I call him, and he was doing the original Rollerball with John Hausman and James Kahn. Mm-hmm. And he said, we, we need some play-by-play of the Rollerball. So I remember going over to a studio. It might have been over, it seems to me it was like over at Disney Studios or something. But I may be wrong on that. Anyway, he said, it's all filmed. You just have to look at it and, and do the do the play-by-play and so i do it and he'd come in the studio laughing and he'd, he'd say bob you were great but you said he picks up the puck and it was a steel ball right <laughs> they were on they were on motorcycles and he'd scoop mm. up the steel ball and i just wouldn't even know i said he scoops up the puck and uh, we we did we had to come back no we did it went so long he said it won't take too long but we had to do it i was making mistakes mm. we had to do it over and over and we had a game that night against the islanders at the forum and I'm looking at my watch, and it's a quarter to four, and I had to go home, pick up my wife in Woodland Hills, and back down to the forum, and I'm thinking, i, I got to get going. And it was a night that 
the uh, Islanders played the Kings, and Butch Goring was cut by, I think it was Denny Pot Van Skateblade came up and broke Butch's orbital bone around his eye. Wow. Serious injury. And I'll never forget that was the night that happened. Um, so it was, it was enjoyable doing that. Uh, the cheers thing, uh, the guy called me at home and he said, Bob, we're really stuck here. We're having trouble writing the play-by-play. And I, I thought maybe it was a union thing. And I said, well, do you need it written? I, he said, well, well, how would we do it? I said, well, give me 12 names and I'll make up the game. What? I said, yeah, give me 12 names. And I'll, because some of it wasn't on TV. Mm-hmm. It was radio. I said, so I'll just make it up. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh, you saved us a day's work. So I went in. They gave me six guys on one team and six on the other, and I made up the game. Oh, and uh, and it, was, it was fun. Then they said, you know, this is a two-part series. I said, no, I didn't know that. Well, you get paid twice. Good. <laughs> and, better. you know, they're still running that. And I, that must have been 25 or more years ago. And I'm still getting not much money now, but probably doesn't even buy a tank of gas now. But still, <laughs> I can't believe it's that many years they're still running that and people have seen it. And so I had, uh, uh, you know, those opportunities and it was fun to do that. Uh, I did one that uh, Adam Sandler did, uh, Big Daddy. Mm-hmm. And he's got a, he's, he's babysitting a kid and the kid's bouncing up in front of the Rangers TV game and he can't see it. And I'm doing the play by play. So. You know, I enjoyed that. I was glad that I didn't rely on that for my living because mm-hmm. I uh, didn't have that many opportunities. But it, it was fun to do that. I have a hundred questions. I'd like to, you know, you know, it always happens this way. You get to the end of it, and you get all these questions, but they're not related to what you're talking about. So you got to hold <laughs> off on them. Um, what I did want to know is, you said Chick Hearn hired you for the King's job. How did that relate? Did you know him before? How did he come to know you or your work? You know, I had a friend that moved out here in 72 and called me, and he had lived in Madison, so he knew I did hockey. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, the Kings are looking for an announcer. That's when Jiggs McDonald, the original announcer, went to Atlanta. So uh, he, I, I found out Chick was put in charge of finding the announcer. Jack Kent Cook said, find a, find a hockey announcer. And uh, so I sent Chick some material and uh, had never met him. And I was working in the University of Wisconsin Athletic Department for Elroy Hirsch at that time, who was athletic director. And we had a Big Ten meeting in Chicago, and the Lakers were coming in to play the Bulls. So I found out what hotel the Lakers were going to stay at. And it was 2.30, our meeting ended. I went over to that hotel. I said, when are the Lakers expected in? Uh, she said about 5 or 5.30. And I thought I could be back in Madison by that time, but that's all right. I got nothing to do. So I hung around and... When the Lakers came in, Chick was notorious for being the first one off the bus, first one with his room key, and first one in the elevator. And so I had never met him, and I walked up and introduced myself. Oh, yeah, Bob, Bob, I got your stuff. I got you. I like it. I like it. I may have something for you. And all this time, he's walking the elevator, and I'm kind of running beside him, and he's in the elevator. I'll give you a call. So I think I I probably have have the job. Summer goes by, I don't hear anything. Mm -hmm. And Don Anderson was the SID at USC. And he came in for a meeting of SIDs in Chicago. And I said to him, this was August. I said, Don, have the Kings named anybody yet? Yeah. They just announced it the other day. They named a guy working at KNX. And so I had seen where 
unfortunately, Chick's son had passed away that summer. And so he left town, and I called him later, and I said, Chick, uh, I didn't tell him I knew somebody was named. I said, any word on the job? He said, nobody called you? He said, when I left, I told Jack Kent Cook, here's my pick. Bob Miller's doing the Wisconsin Badgers. And I get back, and they've hired somebody else. And I think what happens, if, if Jack Kent Cook said, you pick the guy, here's three candidates, and you pick one, he'd pick another one just to show you I own the team and I'm running the team. So then I heard that they were maybe going to make another change the next year. So I sent Chick more material. I just said, if anything happens, I'm still interested in the job. And uh, again, I saw him there in Chicago, and he said, hey, I, I may give you a call. And about a month later, he called and said, come on out here and, and uh, let's talk. So he came out here, and I'm ready to sign my contract. This is 1973. Sign my contract the next day. And my wife calls from Wisconsin and says, the Pittsburgh Penguins just called. <laughs> I said, what do they want? Well, they want to know if you want to do their games. 10, 12 years, I'm sending out tapes. Nobody wants you. Now, I'm all ready to sign, and Pittsburgh calls. And I didn't know whether to tell Chick this or not, because I thought he wants this off his mind. I picked the guy. And, but I called him, and I told him, and I thought he'd get upset. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, Bob, you call them. Don't ever refuse to call someone who's going to offer you a job. You call them and see what the deal is. If it's better than here, take it. And I appreciated that because, like I said, he put time into this and he just thought, okay, get this over with. And I called and it wasn't as good as here. So uh, I took the job here. But I appreciated him saying, you always, always call somebody back if they're going to offer you a job. What, and, what if both deals were even? Who would you have picked? You know, I came out here with my wife. We landed in June of 73. Chick Hearn and Larry Regan, who was the G King's GM at that time, picked us up, took us over to Marina Del Rey at the warehouse to eat. Mm -hmm. And it was 106 in downtown. And we're sitting out on the patio looking at the yachts and everything. And my first thought was, how much am I going to have to pay them <laughs> to get this job? <laughs> I thought, this is not Pittsburgh. Right. This, is, this I think, is where I want to be. And uh, it worked out great. And the funny thing was they rented a car for me, $14.95 a day, a Plymouth Omega. And I was going to Mr. Cook's house in Bel Air to finalize the deal. And they said, if he asks whose car it is, tell him it's your car. Don't tell him we rented it for you. I thought, geez, it's $14.95 a day. <laughs> you know? mm. So we go up there and you pull into his through the gates and into his courtyard and you park right outside his home office. And at one point he looks out and he says, whose little car is that? And I said, it's my car, Mr. Cook. What kind is it? I said, it's a Plymouth Omega. He said, I like little cars. <laughs> I have two of them myself, a Mercedes and a Maserati. <laughs> <laughs> so I knew that I'm not going to get a lot of money here. But uh, no, I had, uh, he was a hands-on owner. There's no doubt about it. I mm. said I was like Pavlov's dog. 
the psychologist who rang a bell and fed the dog, right? And then the dog would hear the bell and salivate. Jack Kent Cook thought our three hours on the air, whether it's Lakers or Kings mm -hmm. or whatever, was a three-hour advertisement for what's going on at the forum. Concerts, <laughs> other sporting events, and season tickets. Talk about season tickets. And he'd call you right while you're on the air. You're not doing what I told you to do. And so I, I got to be like Pavlov's dog. A phone would ring anywhere in the building, and I'd hear it, and I'd say, don't forget, season tickets are available for the Kings. <laughs> <laughs> I was conditioned to do it. That is funny. Well, the transition from Jack Kent Cook to Jerry Buss, what was that like for you? Night and day. Jerry Buss never said one thing about criticism about what you're doing. He was, to me, someone who hired you, and if you did your job, he left you alone. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, I would sometimes wonder, Jerry, do you, do you even do you listen to our broadcast? Because he'd never, he'd never say anything except once in a while, and I love this, at the end of a game, he knew we recorded the highlights for playback on tape. Mm -hmm. And he'd come in the press room and he'd say, have you got that game-winning goal on your tape machine? I said, yeah, let me hear it. Let me hear it. <laughs> and he, he wanted to hear the call of the game-winning goal because mm -hmm. he gets so excited about it. So, uh, you know, that was, that was uh, uh, enough for me to know that he appreciates it and I appreciated that, that he let it go uh, and not interfere with what you're doing as long as you're doing your job. Final two questions before we wrap this up. If you weren't a broadcaster, what would you be? I'd be a country western singer and a bad one probably in Nashville or Las Vegas and not making any money and probably give up. You know, I go to those places in Nashville we talked about. Mm. It's 10 in the morning. I'll go in and have a maybe breakfast and a cup of coffee and there's a guy on stage with three people in the in the in the building and he's playing guitar and he's good. And I'm thinking why are other guys being recorded and this guy to me is really good, and he's here at 10 in the morning with 10 people or three people listening to him. And I just I feel sorry for him, you know, because he's good. So there are so many of those people, just like there are here with actresses and actors mm -hmm. who want to do it, and they're good, but they never get that break. And I've always thought about that in Nashville. But, yeah, I'd, I'd uh, probably do something completely out of the sports realm. What do you want people to remember you most for? I think I'd like them to say, you know, he was always prepared and enthusiastic and brought excitement to the game, excitement that we could all feel and be a part of, and uh, that he was friendly with everybody, talked with everybody, which I love to do, and uh, accessible to everybody, no matter who you are and what you are. And I think you'd want to be known more for being a better person than a better broadcaster. But uh, uh, that would be nice if uh, if both of them came together. Yeah, you mentioned the accessibility. I feel bad at times. I, I even feel guilty because you're walking the halls of Staples trying to get up to the press box, and people are just flagging you down left and right, <laughs> asking for an autograph or a picture, and it's like, wait a minute, puck drops in about 20, 30 minutes. <laughs> you got to get ready for the broadcast. You know what? I have never wanted someone to walk away and tell someone else, you know, I ran into Bob Miller, and what a jerk. He wouldn't talk to me. <laughs> I, that's in my mind. I don't ever want that to happen. Mm. And, uh, you know, it doesn't take very much to say, hey, how are you? Sure. What's your name? And 
you know, would you sign this? Yeah, and uh, I, mean, I enjoy that. I really do enjoy that. And uh, the, the people, I don't understand people who get annoyed with that. Um, you know, there are times when you're under a time limit. I, sure. I can't now, I've got to go, and, and they understand that. But why get involved? These are these are people, the reason you have your job. Mm-hmm. They're your viewers and your listeners. And once you get that reputation of you're a jerk and nobody wants to listen to you, you're out of a job. And uh, so it, it, it takes a few seconds to have somebody talk to you. And, you know, I've, I've had people come to me and say, you know, when I was a kid, I wrote you a letter. And you wrote back to me, <laughs> and I've still got it. And I said, that's not a difficult thing to do. Mm-hmm. You take 10 minutes, you write back to somebody, and they yeah. appreciate it. Yeah, it's what, what I appreciate, and David and I talk about this a lot on the podcast, is, is the authenticity. I'm going to tell – I know you got to go. I'm going to tell one final Bob Miller story. So at this seminar I went to where Bob was, um, somebody asked a question about managing a relationship, um, you know, managing a relationship while you're pursuing broadcasting. So – I won't mention any names, but there was one guy there who gave some long, convoluted, self, you know, like self-congratulatory answer. They asked Bob the question, and he says, well, my wife comes to every home game, and when we get home, we don't really talk too much about it, and that's kind of how it goes. And it was just the most authentic, and I, it, was, it was obviously true, but it was just the authenticity which you delivered. I'm like, well, okay, that's guy, you know, he's going to work. And he gets to take his wife to work, and that's cool. And then when he gets home, he's home. It, it was brilliant. It was after a six-minute convoluted answer, it was so refreshing to hear Bob's answer to that question. I thought it was awesome. Well, the only other line I have is the marriage has lasted 52 years. So we're doing something right. 52 years. That's fantastic. <laughs> Bob, I, it meant so much to us to have you in here today in, in the studio. I know taking time out of your day, especially after a broadcast last night. But – I don't feel too bad for you because you're going to be on a plane in a little bit heading to Sin City. You're going to go play some poker with the Kings, and then you got Frozen Fury, Kings, and Avalanche. Yeah. I'm not going to play poker. I don't play cards, uh, so I have I know nothing about it. Um, <laughs> and uh, I don't have the patience to sit and play the slot machine all the time. <laughs> so it's going to be pretty tame over there as far as uh, – but it's just great to go over there mm-hmm. and see so many fans – from Colorado and from the Kings in their jerseys, in their hockey jerseys, in the casino and all over Vegas mm-hmm. and realize that, you know, they're having fun here and they're going to see a preseason hockey game and have fun watching it and uh, and go over and see the new arena being built there. And who knows, Las Vegas may be in the National Hockey League in a couple of years. Yeah, you never know. I mean, the game's expanding all the time and the continuing presence of Wayne Gretzky from when he arrived here in, in Southern California. Bob, thanks again for joining us today. Good luck to you and Jim Fox and the rest of the broadcasting team over at Fox Sports West on a, on a big 2015-2016 season. Thank you very much, David. Gasol, nice to be with you, and uh, I enjoyed it. Broadcast Hall of Famer Bob Miller and Ghazal Hassan joining us today. That's going to do it here at David Gascon Report on Fox Sports Radio's podcast edition from Behind the Glass. We'll see you again next week. Thanks for stopping on by. This is Fox Sports Radio.